house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. I just need to talk to somebody who doesn't completely misunderstand who I am or what's going on inside me. I feel like you and I used to relate to each other really well. I feel so bad about what happened, and I'm trying so hard to do something about it. The worlds of one would leave me a lie, and yet you will weep and know why. It is Margaret you mourn for. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that doesn't trust those blogs one bit. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my short-skirted prep schooler, Chris File. Hello, Chris. I apologize for my use of strident. I'm sorry that I used the word wrong, but you know what I mean. Please, please I'm not being to dramatic to be my podcast host. Uh, what a tart you are, uh, Chris File. Um, we have this movie has been sort of in the wings for us for a while for a discussion, even before, and we'll and we'll invite our uh, our special guest in in a second. But even before our guest this week kind of claimed it, we've been excited to eventually do this movie because there is so much to talk about. All right, this is my question for you before we do anything, Chris. Okay. How long did it take you to stop feeling pretentious for calling it Margaret? I mean, that's the title of the movie. Because my answer is, I'll let you know when it happens. <laughs> that is the title of the movie. If it's not, if it's supposed to just be Margaret and not Margaret, blame Matthew Broderick for his correct line reading. I am a rest, rust belt boy, and whenever I say Margaret, it feels like I it, I feel very uh, uh, Barcelona about it. You know what I mean? Oh, it's yeah. just like, it feels like a little. Your natural uh, inclination is to call the movie Maggie, <laughs> Peggy. I call this movie Peggy, um, which is actually one of the like one of the cuts of the movie was dubbed the Peggy cut, and uh, I'm now just realizing why that okay, is. Okay, by Peggy who is though? Because Lonergan's like, don't look at me. Right. Oh, I mean, the grand mysteries of the the many different cuts of this movie. We'll talk about it. I'll be interested to see what cuts we all watched, because there were definitely uh, two of them that are available to rent on Amazon. And uh, uh, very exciting to get into this movie. There's a billion things to talk about, and I don't want to get any further down the road without uh, inviting in our guest who requested this movie uh, especially and... The second that he did, I was like, well, this has to happen immediately because, like, that's exactly the exact right choice. We have with us actor, film enthusiast, drama desk nominee, which I think this is the first time we've had a drama desk nominee on our podcast, Chris, but uh, uh, we'll double check to make sure. Uh, uh, if you saw. Noted drama desk nominee, uh, Katie Rich. Right, <laughs> exactly. Katie, to quit hiding your Drama Desk nomination next time you're on. We'll talk about it. Hot Judd from Hot Oklahoma on Broadway. It is our good friend Patrick Vale. Welcome, Patrick. What a thrill. 
I'm <laughs> so, so happy to be here. Thank you very, very much for having me. This is like a really, yeah, I'm completely, completely thrilled to be talking about this movie with you both today. You are consistently one of uh, my favorite people to talk movies with because I feel like we share a very similar wavelength when it comes to Oscar movies and sort of the Oscars as a whole. This was a thing we, you know, bonded over very early, and I feel like this is a perfect marriage of uh, podcast and uh, and podcast subject for you because, holy mackerel, the, <laughs> the story of Margaret is... Absolutely, just as epic as the film and as winding. So we'll get to your uh, Oscars origin story soon mm-hmm. enough, but I do, while we're talking about Margaret... Why was it that this was the movie that when I said, what would you like to cover for us, that this was the one that jumped to mind? Well, so um, it was always sort of, you know, for I think many people that in when it was still sort sort of hidden and not able to be seen, it was sort of everybody's white whale, right? Uh, it was like, what yes. is this movie? What's this movie called Margaret? You know, because we didn't, we hadn't heard Matthew Broderick pronounce it correctly for us. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, um, so it was this, this thing. And then, you know, it is very inextricably linked actually to my Oscars origin story. Um, really because of its star, Anna Paquin, um, who I think is just tremendous in this movie. And, Oh, it's yeah. one of these, like, holy hell. Ha- like, have you seen her in this? Like, can you, have you seen what she can freaking do? And, um, and so I really just sort of always thought, like, what if, what if this had had just a very clean, peaceful birth and had been given to us as the rightful follow up to You Can Count on Me from this, like, exciting new film director and, what if it had just had a peaceful coming to us all? And it seems almost like the same kind of tragedy that the film depicts, the sort of, you know, when you, if you win, you still lose kind of thing, that it's this right. beautiful sort of sad, but ultimately, like, I don't know, maybe life-affirming um, story of like but like the movie and also the movie's release so yeah it felt kind of just something i i feel like i would love to talk about this movie for hours and hours and hours so i was sort of like well this would be a great choice yeah i think chris when i mentioned this to you that this was patrick's choice i think you were uh quite pleased oh i was like yep done when can we do that that's that's perfect um it, it's I definitely want to talk about when we get into the movie. I'm so glad you brought it up, Patrick. The just the idea of what would the what would it have been like for this movie had it had you know its original intended birth. Um, even if that meant that there was still some like delays, but there weren't all the lawsuits, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it got a, a normal release. I, I'll be excited to talk about that but like as far as talking about this movie for hours i my my one thing about doing this movie is like will the and i felt this with things like hustlers and you know other Mm. movies that we are really passionate about and love is like it would take so much to do like i'm almost nervous to talk about this movie because i know i'm going to like get on the other side of this recording and be like oh god why didn't i bring this up there's just so much to talk about that a single episode feels like it'll never be sufficient. 
Oh, God. Right. Yeah. No, I have like this list of things that are like really just the list of while I was watching the movie, just being like, oh, I want to talk about this, which obviously is none of that is like important enough to actually even speak about. But it's just things that little things that you love about this movie that like keep sort of popping up and you say, oh, God, look at that and look at that. And oh, it's just so freaking good. So which which cut did we watch to prepare for this? Or did some of us do both? I tried I to do both. I, watched, I ran out of time, but I did the extended cut. I watched the three-plus-hour director's cut. I did both. I did the three-plus-hour director's cut, and then I did the theatrical release to sort of actually sort of see which, you know, what it's like to have all the stuff taken away. And, you know, it's not as fun to have it taken away. I'm I'm glad that we have that perspective, so we'll be able to, because I'm watching this, and this is only the second time that I've that I saw the movie and the first time actually that I've seen the 3 hour cut the only time mm. I'd ever seen it was when it was theatrically released at the end of 2011 and that mm. was the two and a half hour cut so I'm watching this movie and I'm just so like So you're one of the like five people that saw this and its original theatrical <laughs> run. I had yeah like the absolute privilege of living in New York City and it wasn't during its initial release because it was sort oh, of Oh they put it back. Oh yeah. It snuck they snuck it into theaters like really legitimately. All of a sudden I remember being on Twitter one day and somebody and I can't for the life of me remember who it was but was just like did we know that Margaret got released? Sorry, Margaret got released into theaters like last weekend. Like it was one of those things where somebody just sort of like must have noticed it on whatever mm. theaters. Uh, it it know, was a very intentionally selected date, which of course we'll get yeah. into the whole like Michigas of it finally actually getting into theaters. But like it was September thirtieth of that mm. year. Yeah. As New York Film Festival is going on, I believe, after, you know, Venice Telluride, Toronto, and it, of course, doesn't go to any of those festivals. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, it was ideal kind of burying ground for this type of movie that, like, I, I do ultimately think it was kind of intentionally, you know, yeah. it, it was released within a way to, like not get Period. people to see yeah. it but also yeah, right. i think they were probably still licking some wounds or afraid that it would not go over well or be mm-hmm. right. treated as a disaster they would rather it just be ignored quietly put away and yeah oh i think it was at cinema village too which is it sort was of like not absolutely. a particularly trafficked theater you know and like, when it went back into theaters in december when finally the grassroots campaign sort of uh, pressured them to release it again into theaters it was back at cinema village too so it wasn't mm. like it was and like <laughs> love cinema village and and yeah you know, very happy for all of those you know uh west village movie theaters small little west village movie theaters but i remember seeing it it wasn't on new year's day but it was like shortly thereafter like right after new year's and it was <laughs> it was only in that theater for a few weeks and but I felt very uh, fortunate that I was you know living in New York City and was able to see that. And the ideal way to see this movie though is to exit onto a city street completely alone into the bitter cold. Right. So yeah. Well, you saw it in ideal yeah. circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this is the the New Yorkiness of this movie. I remember uh, watching mm. it again. I was. I remembered why I have this sort of odd feeling when I walk past that fairway on Broadway on the Upper West Side. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh, right. Like, this is why. Like, this is why I always sort of, like, 
stare down that fairway a little bit is because it's right there uh, at the bus crash scene in this film. Oh, which yeah. Is- it's amazing. There's an interview with Lonergan where he talks about how specific they were with the geography of New York in this movie that he really didn't yeah. want them, you know, like turning onto 74th Street and then turning a corner and suddenly they're in Greenwich yes. Village. And it's so it really gives this movie this sort of unspoken texture that you just it feels very, very, very alive in this way because of that. Which is why mm-hmm. it would drive me crazy, and not to like be the annoying like New York centric person, but like this is a New York centric movie, so I feel justified. Yeah. But it would annoy me when I would read a review and they would be like their apartment on the Upper East Side, and I'm like, listen, buddy, <laughs> like this is yeah. an Upper West Side movie through and through. Like I don't want to hear about your Upper East Side. Like Lincoln <laughs> Center is coursing through the veins of this movie. Like what are you talking about? So it's a nuanced I, thing, but it is very specific to, like, Lisa's mindset in this movie mm-hmm. in that, like, she's yes. living in the most bustling city in the world, but she only exists in a very small part of it. Like, keeping yeah. it kind of isolated to a yep. few neighborhoods, basically, it really kind of gives you this sense of her world being incredibly small, but she exists in a very full world to the point where when she's like going to Jeannie Berlin's house, which might just be (laughs) in a, like a subway stop away or two, it feels like, you know, she's an adult going on some journey outside of her normal bubble or, you know, Oh yeah, and then when it, she goes to Bay Ridge to see Ruffalo, and like that's she, the one. That's the yeah. one where it's just like this might as well be in like Kansas, as far as Branson. Like, it's so know, far. Right? Well, there's a point. There's a shot where there's a few shots of this where you see sort of Lisa walking down a city street, and she sort of like disappears mm. into the crowd. This very sort of I always think of it as the Natalie Portman in Closer shot, even though like I know it's like it goes beyond that but that's the one i always think of and, and canonically they, it's referred to as the tootsie shot but like the tootsie shot yes mm. um and the it, it, she's in midtown and they show the 51st street sign and i'm like well that's fairly far south for lisa like yeah. it's just like she's really far afield of her her preferred environs like uh, she's a 75th street lady um as far as i'm concerned but yeah it's the New Yorkiness of this movie really obviously appeals to me. I've talked about this on the podcast before. I am in a very Upper West Side portion of my life right now. I watch Only Murders in the Building and sigh deeply, knowing that I would absolutely mm. risk being murdered in my apartment if I could live in uh, in one of those places. <laughs> Same deal with Single White Female. I would absolutely let Jennifer Jason Lee murder me on most occasions, but especially if I could uh, if I could live in one of those fancy apartment buildings. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. Wait, so Patrick, uh, you yeah. alluded to it when you were talking about uh, Margaret, but um, mm. your Oscars origin story, we ask this of all of our first time guests, oh, yeah. and I'm sure we've, you know, discussed this uh, uh, over, you know, drinks on frigid uh, bar, outdoor bar setups before, but yeah. um, share with us again, what is your, what would you consider your Oscars origin story? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, you know. Um, I think like most people, I sort of like was going along with my life, not knowing they existed until I did. And, um, and I guess it would have been the 94 Oscars for the 93, uh, movie year. Anna Paquin was nominated for best supporting actress for the piano. And my parents, my wonderful parents who think that, you know, art is important and kids should see kids succeeding in art were like, you can stay up. 
uh, because there's a young girl being nominated for something called an Oscar. And, you know, she's a little, she's your sister's age. And, you know, you can stay up with your sister and you can watch and see, maybe she'll win. You never know. And, you know, I sort of sat and was watching and sort of probably was just confused being like, what are, who are all these people? What's going on? <laughs> and then she won. And she's, you know, with all these other people are standing and sort of cheering this like little adorable girl who gets up and in her little like blue dress with that little hat and her braid. A and she hat. just sort of, oh my God. I mean, that is, that's one of those things that I will put on YouTube. Like if you ever like need to turn your day around, it's just like adorable little Anna Paquin just frozen up there and breathing, just heaving and going. <laughs> and then I will finally, say it right now. Oh, if somebody out there wants to do uh, Anna Paquin Oscars uh, outfit for Halloween one year. I've wanted to do it. Oh, my God. You will be my favorite person in the entire world if you can do that. That um, is genius. Because she looks like, unlike, you know, oftentimes, you know, when like a kid goes to an award ceremony, they're sort of tarted up to look like a sort of small adult. But here was this like actual child struggling to lift this huge statue and sort of has this adorable little rehearsed speech in her New Zealand accent where she thanks somebody named Beanie for taking care of her. <laughs> and off she goes. And I was like, oh. And, you know, little, I think I must have been like eight. I was like, what is, what is, what was that? What, what? And then my parents were like, go to bed. And, um, <laughs> And the next year, I was sort of very, very pointedly not paying attention to the Oscars because that was the Forrest Gump year. And I felt like somewhat betrayed by that film because right. my well, for a sort of strange reason, which is that my parents, you know, woke me and my sister up on a Saturday, probably said, we're going to go to the movies. We're going to go and see a movie called Forrest Gump. And I was like a kid who was really into Oz. Like I really liked The Wizard of Oz and I liked all the books and I read the books yes. and I loved Return to Oz. And I, I thought that whether... you were saying you were, I was gooped for a second the because HBO I thought prison you were drama? saying, I was the type oh. of child who was into the HBO prison drama Oz. Yeah. Could you imagine? Well, God. No, but so I was really into like the Wizard of Oz and in the Oz books, there is a creature called a gump, which oh, is no. like a kind of moose slash donkey. And it's a very sort of gentle figure that lives in a forest and so i got really excited because i thought you know oh my goodness we're gonna go see a movie it's about a gump that lives in the forest and i was you thought that forrest gump was going to be the original gregory Maguire? exactly i thought oh wow we're gonna go and see you know like an oz movie i can't wait and then the movie starts and there's that feather and i'm like, oh goodness you know and then it lands and there's tom hanks and i Spent the like the first half of the movie being like, well, he'll probably you know end up going to Oz <laughs> any minute now, <laughs> any minute now it's going to happen, and then it never did. So I was very very upset by that movie, and um, so didn't watch the Oscars that year. Needless to say, um, but then the following year was like the year where I was rooting for Babe and um, sure. Sense and Sensibility, which I loved. But it was also the year of I don't know if y'all remember. Uh, the costume parade that they did. Oh, do I? Where yeah. they had the <laughs> models coming out and they're like, here's do Tyson Beckford modeling clothes from 12 monkeys. And he's like in a spacesuit. <laughs> and uh, Kate Moss comes out from Sense and Sensibility. And it was so, and it was so above and beyond anything my meager mind could grasp as to what was going on in my television. But all I knew is that whatever that was, I, wanted it 
again. And I wanted it to like inject it into my veins because it was insane. And the pageantry and it was so grand. And then all these very, very important looking people and these movies that I had seen in a theater were being celebrated on my television. And it was very, very wild. And then I guess the next year would have been um, English Patient and Fargo, where my parents somehow yeah. thought it was like totally cool for me and my sister to watch Fargo at that age. So that's amazing. <laughs> I was like rooting real hard for Fargo. And like, needless to say, I was like a bit crushed that the English Patient happened. And then, you know, the next year was um, Titanic, which I think for sure. everybody, I, that was when I saw Titanic. And then you know, under started, I had started reading Entertainment Weekly and especially saving the fall movie preview. And so I had all these things I was looking forward to. And uh, that was when I suddenly said, well, okay, so Titanic is obviously everybody's saying this is going to be like this, the, this big Oscar play, but what about everything else? What else is there going to be? And that's when I started sort of becoming obsessed with the Times art section and sort of staring at these movie ads and being like, what, what's that? Yeah. And like, Oh, look, this studio has a different font in their theater listings than this one. Like that kind of like real, <laughs> like deep nerd stuff. And, um, and so and you grew I up said, in New York city, right? So you were able yeah. to like go and see these kind of yeah. artsy Oscar movies. Totally. And yeah, my, you, you know, whenever they opened rather than me waiting for like, april or whatever exactly yeah yeah it was a completely wild and like my um so i made a list i I sort of wrote it on like a piece of you know spiral notebook paper of like the things i wanted to see and my parents were like jesus i don't have time to like go do it so they were like well we'll drop you off (laughs) and my dad dropped me off on like a saturday morning at the Lincoln Plaza Cinema, my beloved Beautiful. Lincoln Plaza, and I yep. watched The Apostle by myself at eleven in the morning. And that's my favorite thing I've ever heard in my entire life. At what age did you watch The Apostle? That's fantastic. I mean, I must have been—I was like twelve or eleven or twelve. Just dropped off, and I was like so thrilled to first of all be by myself in a movie theater, which meant I could get popcorn and not share it. but it also means that you are an adult yes and you're also at lincoln plaza so you're with like some like real stone cold adults yeah and like yeah soup you're like not only are you an adult but you're aged and um right it was so then like my dad picks me up and he's like how was the movie and i was like Oh, really great. You know, thinking I felt like such a freaking grown up. And then he, you know, we take and like have lunch. And then he went and dropped me off. I think at like the Sutton Place Theater, some theater that's no longer there, um, where I watched Kundun oh my God. all by myself. <laughs> and like talk about not knowing what the hell was happening, but being like, wow, just Man. like, damn, Scorsese. Like, I didn't know who Martin Scorsese was at that time. Sure. I no. I su- I knew who Philip Glass was, so that was my I was my pretentious little child self. So I quit. Oh my god, Philip Glass did the score. I would have thrived <laughs> as a precocious little New York City child. I have to say, like I really. Would oh have, yeah, you do, I would definitely have would have. It yeah. was amazing, and so like you know, in that year I ended up seeing pretty much like everything. So then I got to be that little asshole kid at watching the Oscars, who's like, oh, I think this one's going to win, but you know, Julie Christie's really great in Afterglow. Ah! And just like total little dickhead. And um but oh so God. yeah, that was sort of and then it was, you know, I was a gone. The most from popular there. kid in school talking to right. the other kids about afterglow. 
<laughs> oh, I mean, I definitely came in one day. We had to do like, you know, reports at my school, like in front of like the whole upper school. And I'm like in eighth grade and I'm like mortified and I like, you know, hate everyone and everything. And I went in and was terrified of speaking in public in front of all these people. So what I did was I just did a weekend box office report and I just rattled off the numbers like you wouldn't believe. And <laughs> all these kids were like, well, you really know your stuff. And that was my big sort of like, you know, middle school success was fantastic. <laughs> that. But yeah, so then it was sort of from there on out, I was pretty much a goner every year. And like, um, and then, you know, the hours very much was another big stepping stone in terms of my like love of actresses. That's what we like to hear. Yeah. You're, you're kissing up <laughs> no. to us now and we appreciate it. So thank you. <laughs> that was, yeah, it was a huge one. And like, that was also a big one in terms of like my deciding, you know, my deciding secretly that I think I wanted to be an actor. And, um, sure. But yeah. then, um, cause seeing, yeah, I had like, you know, Nicole Kidman had had so that sort of fantastic run of like Moulin Rouge, the others birthday right. girl. And um, I was like, wow, whatever, if she can do that, then like, this is worth actually doing. And um, do you ever imagine, and I, it's gotta be mm. true that there was somebody, some either critic or some opinion haver back then who was like, you know what the real best Nicole Kidman performance of this stretch is? It's birthday girl. Like who was the like <laughs> contrarian of contrarians who was just like, you're all, you're all, it, you know, up a creek about this. It's birthday girl. That's the one. That's the Armand White opinion. I mean, listen, a... I was that asshole. I was like, you guys really need to see birthday girl. No You're really sleeping it. on birthday girl. <laughs> I was so amazed because I was like, the first third of the movie, she doesn't speak. The second third, she speaks Russian. And then the third, she speaks English with a Russian accent. Who else could do that? Probably a lot of people. But like, you know. I was like, you know, she was, yeah, I was so, I, so, that's so fantastic. Into her. All right. This is my favorite Oscars origin story of them all. I, again, <laughs> the more I imagine my, my, the life I never had as a uh, little twerpy uh, New York City movie boy, I, I saw In our fantasy it, repertory theater, we will on your birthday program a double feature of The Apostle and Kundun. Yes. <laughs> just oh for my you god just i mean what a day yeah. that was that was yeah uh, that was also always the fun of it. it was like programming sort of things to see to get to pair things together so i think i did like wag the dog and as good as it gets in one day and you know oh a bug's god. life and ants like jesus <laughs> oh really just like keeping it on theme yeah you really oh, well, yeah to, to i was best, like judge yeah. the differences between the two of them and really get into the finer points of, uh, of exactly you know insect life yes all right patrick <laughs> Um, take a, take a sip of water, compose oh, yourself. We are going to move into the 60 second plot description in a second. And I want you to sort of get your vocal rest mm -hmm. for, for a minute or two and really, uh, uh, be ready. This is going to, we were talking about this off mic before we started recording. And I said, the plot description for Margaret could be either 20 seconds or, or 10 minutes, because it is depending on how how you want to sort of like generalize or not everything that's happened. Either nothing happens in this movie or everything happens in this movie. And um, it's very, very like curious. What happens in a mid, what happens in a meadow at dusk in I heart. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
nothing, everything. God, one of the great underrated scenes in all of cinema. I, I oh. talking about socialism. No, I'm not. I'm talking about not covering every square inch of populated America with houses and strip malls until you can't even remember what happens when you stand in the meadow at dusk. What happens in the meadow at dusk? Everything. 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 Beautiful. When when we were going through this sort of Jean Smart assance, not that she ever went away, but whatever the the Jean Smart summer that we were going through last year, and everybody, all of a sudden, everybody was on the bandwagon, and I would mention every once in a while just to sort of like find out who the real ones were, and just mm. be like, well, obviously, I heard I heard Huckabees, and the real ones would come back and be like, yes, absolutely, because yeah, it's they'd say you're one the Hitler. perfect scene. You're the Hitler. It's <laughs> you're the great one of the great line readings in her career and uh, i love her so much all right so uh, we are this week talking about if you've made it this far into the podcast and, and don't know we're talking about margaret uh here i'm here to tell you we're talking about margaret written and directed by kenneth lonergan meant to be released in 2006 was released in 2011 and we'll definitely get into that starring deep breath Anna Paquin, J. Smith Cameron, Jeannie Berlin, Mark Ruffalo, Matt Damon, Jean Renault, Matthew Broderick, Allison Janney, John Gallagher Jr., Kieran Culkin, Rosemary DeWitt, Olivia Thirlby. God, this was the the era of Olivia Thirlby being in everything. <laughs> this movie, the original release of this movie and when it was released, like the Olivia Thirlby era existed in between that. It had begun oh, and kind of ended. <laughs> I know she's still working and everything like that, but like. Truly, Truly, the golden age of yeah. Olivia Thirlby was within that span. Uh, Kenneth Lonergan is in this movie himself. Sarah Steele, Michael Ely. Who am I forgetting? There's there's eight bajillion people in this movie. Oh, my God. Really Josh ended. Hamilton. It depends on which cut of the movie you've watched. Right. Also true. Also mm. true. Uh, it premiered, as we said, sort of snuck into theaters on September 20th, 2011. Was re-released a few months later after an online campaign. Hashtag Team Margaret. Uh, Patrick, I've got my little uh-huh. stopwatch out. You've got 60 seconds on the clock. Okay. Are you ready oh boy. to talk about Margaret? Yeah, why not? All Let's right. do it. Your time starts now. Okay, picture it. New York City, post 9-11. A teenage girl named Lisa Cohen lives on the Upper West Side with her actress mother and little brother, where she also goes to high school. Her father lives in L.A. and is planning to take her and her brother on a horseback riding trip in New Mexico, and Lisa decides she simply must have a cowboy hat for this. She can't find one, but suddenly, as she walks down Broadway, she spots a cowboy hat on the driver of the M104 bus and decides to playfully chase him down, trying to get his attention so she can ask him where he got it. He's waving back, and they're both smiling in the sort of game, and they're so caught up that they don't see the light change to red. He barrels through it, running headlong into Alice and Janney, pushing a shopping cart from Fairway. Lisa screams and cradles Janney's head in her lap as she dies horribly. Lisa is traumatized and caught up in the drama and tells the police that the light was green and that everything was an accident, but later her conscience catches up to her. She tries, with the help of Janney's friend Emily, to bring about a wrongful death long suit against the MTA and surprisingly pulls it off. They win a huge settlement, but everything is soured by her learning that prevailing doesn't mean you've changed anything one bit. She goes to the opera with her mother and with the city and music around her, releases into a kind of maturity and understanding of real loss and hugs her mother. Holy shit, time. Perfect, that- Patrick, I have to tell you, when you ventured into the horseback riding trip with her dad, I was like, oh, he's fucked. Like, he's done for. There's no way. When it was 30 seconds and Alice and uh, Janney was still alive in your story, I was like, oh, no. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. That was impressive. You really brought that in. I, uh, oh, I, I'm not going to ask if you, uh, rehearsed for this at all because I don't want to get into your process. <laughs> but, uh, that was I will say I had, I, what, 
the thing that I really wanted to, I mean, to talk about, but I felt, you know what, cut for time was the centerpiece scene with Ruffalo. But, you know, we'll get into okay. it. Okay. No, we let's jump ahead because that half of my notes are about that scene when she I mean, goes to uh, to Bay Ridge and she shows up on Ruffalo's doorstep with the first of all because it changes the entire movie, right? Where yeah. all of a sudden him not giving her what she wanted out oh. of that moment, not even knowing, I don't even think she knew what she wanted out of that moment, but her being I sort think of dissatisfied, she definitely wanted him to like be as righteous and like mm-hmm. motivated by doing the right thing as she thinks she is. Yeah. I think he just wanted sort of she wanted him guilt. to to honor her feelings about this. Everything in this movie is about <laughs> she wanting everybody to honor her feelings. But the fact that he uh is mean to her in that moment and then she decides, well now this guy must pay is uh, oh, yeah. is the sort of linchpin of the movie. But also I spent and I rewound it and I watched the scene again because I needed to actually watch the scene because I found myself just looking at Rosemary DeWitt's face throughout that oh, entire yeah. scene, which is absolutely a roller coaster ride of watching it because she is just absolutely fixated like a hawk on mm-hmm. Lisa during that entire scene because, first of all, she thinks this girl has been fucking her husband. Like, that's oh, absolutely on her face. Yeah. It's just like, why are you showing up on our doorstep? What are you going to tell us? What fresh hell have you decided to bring, <laughs> uh, invite in upon this family? And she re- doesn't want to go inside the house because, like, she doesn't want them to have a private conversation. And then once she realizes what Lisa's doing, she's sort of puzzled by it and mm-hmm. like but doesn't like her face doesn't soften one bit but it's just mm. sort of just like why are you here what is going on and for like a moment she sort of looks like she feels pity for her but then mm. it like ultimately it comes down just like you know he's what is what does she say like he um like he's really messed up about this or something like that right like he's he took he's mm. taking this really hard and like wanting her to understand what ruffalo's going through but like she's brilliant in that scene holy shit it's amazing and also and like the, the whole thing of like let her use the bathroom like that this sort of yes. weird sort of what yeah is why her... don't you want to let her use the bathroom you weirdo like yeah. it's so amazing <laughs> and these screaming children behind her and then you know yeah. like and then when she you know they actually do go outside to talk and then Rosemary DeWitt comes back out sort of being like, I need to check on this. It's so, she's incredible. I love that you zero in on Rosemary DeWitt first, because (laughs) this is is exactly the type of movie that it is, that it's like these, when I say minor, like somebody will come into the movie for two minutes and then leave and you never see them again. But like that actor is still keeping the performance of their life and like fully fascinating that you can fully unpack. Um, And I just think not to say the trite thing, but I think it speaks to the movie we're talking about that like you could almost pick up any extraneous detail or performance and mm-hmm. like that just gets the ball kind of rolling in unpacking this movie. Oh yeah. Well, no, and it's I'm, not an extraneous mm. performance, but like I wrote also wrote down I was like, Allison Janney deserved the Beatrice Strait Oscar for this. Holy movie. shit. Amazing. How did like how, talk about who one is this scene witch that like that she can make a, a moment in that scene funny? She has a laugh line right. in that scene. And right, it's, yeah. it's it's unbearable. That scene is unbearable, but then she still gets a laugh, and 
I mean, and, she's but, playing and, and the, then the horror who's... of it too, obviously. Where like when mm. she says, um, "Are my eyes open? I can't oh. see." Like that is just like a just icy chill, just like spikes through your heart. It's crazy. And that's like I that mean, amazing the... pacing of that of just then everybody freezes in this sort of sweet like little girl way that Paquin says they're open. It's oh, uh, that scene is also all uh, striking to me. In it's, I mean, the movie's so dense that you don't really think about like the delay and the timing but like the movie does feel like a time capsule when you watch it and mm-hmm, i think yeah. at the time it felt it because you know culture had changed so much what's mm, yeah. uh, i'm always struck by rewatching that scene in particular is no one has a cell phone out mm-hmm, recording right. it mm-hmm. um right and right, like in the time calling, from the from the movie filming yeah. to release, that would have changed entirely. Yeah, um, yes, it's true. But that scene is just unreal. the The blood spatter <sighs> when they try to do the tourniquet every time is so stomach churning because it's so shocking, yep. and it's like it's the type of gruesomeness that you don't expect to see in a movie like this. Yeah, um, right. But I also well, think the movie it's... never shows her full body. Like you see, it pans past the leg, so like you know oh, that yeah. like she's yeah, you been... see her detached leg. Yeah, uh, which is also like see... a jump scare. Right. Yeah. Oh my. I mean, because you think like, she's trapped under the bus, stomach. and then it keeps panning. That and then yep. oh, <laughs> that two second shot of the bus squashing her cart. Oof. Yes. Is. Ugh. And I mean, and the movie needs that scene to be as harrowing mm-hmm. as it is mm-hmm. to sort of fuel the engine of the rest of the movie, or else you're not going to like you're never on board with Lisa certainly throughout <laughs> the rest of this movie. But to understand why this has fucked her up so much, and mm-hmm. and to just sort of like it it needs to it needs to hit the audience like a ton of bricks to justify this gargantuan movie because if and especially because it's not a 911 metaphor exactly it's a movie about sort of mm. post 911 New York but it's not like but I can but, get into a read of it as like kind of a grand nine it's not about 911 but like post 911 mm. America and where we saw ourselves or, or how we actually were in the world versus how we saw ourselves mm-hmm. um especially like that watch... scene the brutality of it like is kind of yeah. necessary to kind of fuel that metaphor too on top of fueling the character mm-hmm. arc well, it's that thing of before this moment and after this moment, right? Before this yeah. moment and after that moment, nothing you're you can't see the world the same way again. You can't you can't yeah. exist in the world the same way again after it. You're sort of fundamentally changed for a thing that didn't happen to you. You were a bystander for it, but you there there's the fact that you're a bystander, but you're also implicated in it in a way that you couldn't possibly you're you're blameless, but not. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. And also then you're powerless to do anything about it, and yet your attempts to do something about it just like feel like they are being more intrusive and obtrusive about uh, this kind of thing than you ever want them to be i don't know it's just like it's it's fascinating to sort of like dig into those layers i think yeah mm-hmm. yeah 
and the sort of subjectivity of it all that basically this thing happens that's a tragedy for this very specific person and yet lisa is somebody who internalizes it as her own tragedy and then with the, the, that at her climax she screams i killed her is yes. sort of this amazing like is that what you think you did is that what you think yeah. happened and that we can't this sort of very very post 9-11 new york that like you didn't know really you couldn't know what anybody else was feeling but you knew right. they were feeling a lot mm-hmm. yeah well and i mean just like i guess no point in going any further without just talking about Anna Paquin's performance here, because obviously, and up until this point, I I thought it was interesting that she's in, I think, kind of the two great uh, about nine uh, 9-11 movies that aren't specifically about 9-11, because she's also mm-hmm. in 25th Hour. And I right. think of, uh, and playing sort of, in 25th Hour, she's the sort of side character simplified version of this where she's still this sort of like she's the you know temptress student right who's having Mm -hmm. she's having an affair with philip seymour hoffman or they're just flirting i can't i can never remember how far i believe they have sex in the club right uh but it's that same thing of just like uh you know, hot, hot to trot student kind of a thing. Right. And, and she was kind of in that era where she was, I mean, almost famous. She played one of the band-aids. She's in this kind of like young. Mm -hmm. She's the one that says, what if we deflower the kid? Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's so good in that movie. God damn it. She's so good in that movie. Um, and so she's in this movie and then in the interim from when it's filmed and when it comes out, she gets cast in true blood, which is also obviously an incredibly like sexually charged show Mm. sort of, you know, soup to nuts and uh, so to speak. And, um, (laughs) so this movie sort of kind of epitomizes, and she also at, uh, in 2000, she joined the X-Men series, which is sort of her Mm. big, uh, mainstream that's sort of before true blood that's sort of the thing that everybody knew her for but this is a really it's fascinating to imagine that for five six years there was this titan of a performance that she had kind of locked away in a drawer and nobody had been able to see it i think i just i find that so fascinating that like all of that time I'm not sure if she's really given a major interview talking about the movie. She's maybe like talked about it obliquely while, you know, promoting other projects. But like, I want someone, I mean, maybe it should be one of us. I, someone, (laughs) I need an interview with Hannah Paquin specifically about this performance because like, yeah, Yeah. what did it feel like to just like, I mean, she's, she's a a professional. I'm sure she's not like, you know, whatever about it, but like, what did it feel like to give this like level of performance and just like the world doesn't see it for years. And then when the world does see it, you know, Mm. almost no one sees it. Like, well, well and, and the story, even like... when the world saw it, was, you know, the release of it, the 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 lawsuit mm-hmm. of it, all of that stuff. And her performance, while people who, everybody who saw the movie sort of walked away being so impressed with it. And yeah. yet, even still, it's overshadowed by the the controversies of that movie, which is too Well, and bad. it's in this, like, really interesting moment of, like, real creativity for her, too, because she, I, I believe it was shot for like you know a month and a half in the middle of the shoot for the third x-men film so she like takes a break from x-men to go and scream at mark ruffalo (laughs) and (laughs) like 
And she had just, <laughs> just hang done, out like, with Jeannie Berlin for a week. Right, know, right. right. Like, exactly. Calling her strident and like just sort of like throwing her entire every bit of her guts is like all over this movie. And, yeah. you know, she had Squid and the Whale and she'd also been doing this like she'd been doing a bunch of theater and um, which I guess actually was sort of how she ended up getting this role was that she did Squid a and the Whale's of, the other one. Squid and the Whale's yeah. the other uh, hot student role. I knew there was a third one there in there somewhere, but it really was oh, yeah. like uh, uh, she it was almost like a typecasting thing for her. For oh, 100 percent. Yeah. Well, and she played she made her like off Broadway debut in this play called The Glory of Living by Rebecca Gilman, where she plays a young sort of like child bride to this guy who she ends up being the one who like lures little girls in for her husband to abuse. And then oh, she God. murders them and buries the bodies. Carla and Homolka story. Holy shit. It's crazy. That was, there and was a real life. There was a real life Canadian couple that that. Oh, that, I might've been that. And um, probably yeah, there's a law and order episode about the Ellen Pompeo plays the woman. It's oh, yeah, amazing. It's yeah. Anyway. And yeah. she got, I mean, I remember when this happened, it was like in 2002, oddly enough, directed by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, oh. And um, I remember reading, like, in the art section, this, like, review from Ben Brantley that was like, this is the greatest performance ever. And um, she was in this, like, amazing moment. And then Margaret seems sort of like the pinnacle of it. It's an amazing run. Well, and it's funny because she wins the Oscar when she's a kid. And, like, the history of sort of Oscar-winning kid performances and their subsequent careers, it's like... No uh, no shade to Tatum O'Neill, who, like, has been through enough and she doesn't need my bullshit. But, like, it's not like Tatum O'Neill sort of blossomed into, like, this great actress of her era, right? Or anything like mm. that. And you look at Anna Paquin's sort of immediate post um, the piano stuff, and it's Fly Away Home's really the only big thing, and she doesn't really emerge again. She's in Amistad, which I totally don't remember her being right. as Queen Isabella in Amistad. So she must it's be very just like strange. At the very, it's got to be. And mm. then, oh, and her, she's in Hurley Burley, which I imagine is another. It's got to be Playing another. Playing the Cynthia uh, Nixon role, probably. Yeah, she Maybe. plays basically what is, she's a care package that's delivered right. to, I yes. think it's Sean So Penn. again, highly, yeah. right. So she doesn't really emerge after Fly Away Home. And it's funny that it's only... Fly Away Home 96 and like Hurley Burley 98. So it's not really that much time for him go yeah. going from, you know, kid to this. And obviously the sexual the sexualizing of her and Hurley Burley isn't the point. It's supposed to be problematic. It's supposed to be uh, mm. uncomfortable. I remember I was such a pretentious little asshole. I remember being like, I want to see Hurley Burley. Why? I don't know. I hadn't <laughs> seen the play, but I knew it was based on a play. And I knew it was like, you know, um, this sort of acclaimed... Uh, playwright and gosh this cast and oh yeah i remember watching it and i was 18 at the time so it's not like i was too young to understand it but i've you know as i've said before like i was whatever ages i was at when i was younger i was a young i was a young 18 i was a young 16 i was a young whatever and so i remember being like i thought i would really love this movie and <laughs> i don't and it's kind of like it's not sitting well with me i'm sort of like i'm the cola scola meme right where it's just like something wasn't quite right about that like, <laughs> I, was, I was sort of nonplussed by that movie and i remembered that felt like almost like an early cautionary tale of just like mm. just because you think this indie movie that seems very cool is gonna be you know your ticket to 
feeling very you know special for liking this cool indie movie like they don't always work out and and nobody ever talks about that movie like ever no. despite that you know it's sean penn and robin wright and and uh and meg ryan is in right movie? meg ryan meg doing, ryan like... spacey of course like sean penn kevin spacey i can't imagine why that movie didn't sit well <laughs> why not? <laughs> with <that> movie. <laughs> i don't want to anyway. get into the like how this movie would have been received in a vacuum just yet until we like talk about the production history and we're still kind of talking about the movie, but I do feel like the, the uh, unfortunate thing of like this movie's history is that it didn't really get a chance to platform Anna Paquin in the way that it might have. Yeah. Um, And like, she seems to be, uh, someone who wants to take a, you know, more like chill career. Cause even like during True Blood, like, mm-hmm. you know, she got magazine covers and such, but like she wasn't, you know, popping off like crazy. You know, it was like almost like a surprise for her. And I think she wants to have this more chill career, which mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you win an Oscar as a child, you know, what, right. a, what, a, yep. what's your other choice? But, um, I don't know. Like, it feels like if this could have moved the needle for anybody, if it if this movie didn't 100%. come with so much baggage, it would have been yeah. her because she's giving this like <sighs> momentous, like best of the decade style performance. Yeah. That yeah, it, it, she it, it's amazing because like she she's playing a teenager has to be like one of the most authentic teenagers you have ever seen, in that it's like. disarmingly so yeah disarmingly so and that like the movie is never trying to she's our protagonist but like and we because the movie is very intelligent we can get on an empathic level with her but like it's a very like i don't want to use a word like abrasive but you know there's you're not wrongness to it there's a shyness to it that's incredibly authentic about teenagers in a way that like you know we don't see it in movies because we just don't tell those type of stories about teenagers, but also like it is unpleasant and I can't really wrap my head around how she can kind of get on those rhythms and like understand Lisa so well where it's like Lisa could just be pissed off because it could be, you know, teenage hormones. It could be, Mm -hmm. you know, that thing two weeks ago that pissed Lisa off and now she's still brewing about it. But like, it's such, uh, it's such a real performance, not to sound again, trite about it, but like, there's a certain level of reality. But I also think there's this like almost metatextual thing where the metaphor of the movie really comes alive in the performance, but it never feels academic. Lisa no. always feels like a person, even oh, if she is yeah. representative of this idea that like America is the world's teenager. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well and the other ha- thing yeah. is it's, it can be very hard on film and, and television to get across the idea that somebody is incredibly self-centered or self-obsessed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the, the act of watching a television show about someone or a film about someone is, 
you are centering that person, right? So it's just like mm-hmm. sometimes I'll be watching something. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer specifically because I'm uh, watching an episode uh, for this other podcast. And there was this whole moment where everybody just sort of like turns on Buffy for being too self-centered. And I think the mm-hmm. everybody, the viewership sort of like were aghast at that. It was like, how can you say that? And it's just like, yeah, it's hard to be like, why are you so self-centered on this show that is – has your name in it and we're watching you because of you you know what i mean so it's hard to like dramatize that and well what but like Lonergan, that's part of the movie's mission too is that this like, is what it i was is about say. a teenager who mm. is going through that process of the first time they really realize that the world is not themselves and like yes. their feelings and, and how, their and how traumatizing that is actually for somebody who uh, right. particularly aside who like from Lisa. going through a traumatic thing like right. Lisa goes through that process is traumatic but I also think it's non-linear that's not an ABC thing well it's and this like, thing where Jeannie Berlin says it's not that you care more it's that you care more easily you care yeah. yes and, and she has that dressing down of her where she's you know, right before she incredible calls her scene. strident that scene is un- unreal and but that this sort of thing that Paquin does in her performance where she has this sort of ungainly physical life in it where she's kind of almost lurching and she has this emphatic way that she listens to people as Lisa that it's so off-putting it's so wonderfully yeah and it like centers Lisa when it's actually about somebody else that is this gorgeous marriage of like this physical life with text that's actually sort of combating that it's she's it's she's plays a teenager as so infuriating and then as those scenes where she becomes like a runaway train and she just you start to see her emotional life churning up and the tears start moving and this and she picks up her speed and you as the viewer are sucked into her feelings because you're like oh right. god this poor little girl, this little girl yeah and it's it's a complete masterpiece in terms of her work. It's like wild. Well, and the other thing is is when I was sort of talking about that like self centeredness of it, and it's in mm. in concert with the way that Lonergan has decided to film this movie. Where how do you dramatize somebody being so sort of malignantly self centered? And it's mm. you show the rest of the world. So much of the interestingingness of this movie, the yeah. sort of I I it all it feels very you know, European for, and maybe I sound like a dull person for saying that, but like it, in the way that it sort of like pushes back and, and widens the scope, you can hear other, so many of these scenes, you hear mm-hmm. other people's conversations sort of like be louder than the one that we're watching. Mm-hmm. And it's all to emphasize. The it's fact more that, pronounced like, than the extended cut. Too. Very Far much so. More pronounced, yes. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah. and I think that's why the extended cut is more effective because what mm-hmm. seems disjointed in the two and a half hour cut, which was why for, like that movie was released and like a lot of people really liked it, but a lot of people really thought it was a mess and really thought it was, you know, fascinating in parts, but ultimately didn't cohere and didn't come together. And I think unless you see that sort of extended cut where you really get the full scope of what Lonergan's doing, where it is mm-hmm. just her perspective gets so like swallow, uh, it, it fights for space with everything mm-hmm. else that's going on around her, right? Where they, there's this whole yeah. big city that is existing while she is having this little personal tempest, right? Where she's just like, everything is like the most important thing. And the movie doesn't ever discount her because, again, it shows you that harrowing bus crash. Like, you you never are yeah. able to be like, well, she's really making a lot of about this. But you also question why 
she isn't able to see that all of these people around her are also going. She never sees what her mother's going through until the very end. That's what yeah. the catharsis of the very end of the movie is. is they finally sort of like see each other, right? Um, she mm. never fully uh, gives Jeannie Berlin's character the primacy of uh, letting her take the lead in everything that they're doing, trying to, you know, get justice for what's going on. Like, God, all of those scenes where they're on the conference calls with the family in Arizona, and every single time Lisa just sort of like barrels over and takes over that conversation, it's so viscerally uncomfortable for me because I was just like, like, just like, it's not about you, but yeah. (laughs) Um, but but anyway, so I feel like Lonergan, it's just a wonderful decision that he makes to film it in that way and dramatize this thing that feels mm. maybe difficult to dramatize. And it really like comes across really well. I read this interview with him in The New Yorker where he talked about that exact thing that you're, that you're talking about, where he, he said that usually what he looks interested in is that usually when you see a character go on a journey in a story, you only see them in relationship to the story. Right. Right. Like, so like you get a little bit, a little taste of what their life is like, and then the big event happens, and then you follow them through that event. But his idea with this movie was, well, what if the, the event happens and then we keep everything else that we've already been seeing in terms of the setup going at the same pace and with the same amount of focus. And so you kind of actually have Lisa in a weird way, like wandering into other people's frames and making it all about her. Yeah, And you get a richer understanding of that character because the canvas is so big and because it's not just about the bus crash. It's also about her bringing that bus crash into all of these other things and her abortion and like all of that I mean that scene is excruciating. Oh my gosh. The, did you Can know I, tell I had you? an abortion last week? It cost four hundred dollars. That's all the mention it gets in the theatrical cut. So, right. Oh yeah. It's, it's kind of odd in the theatrical cut when she says that to Matt Damon, which is a whole other like can of worms um, for the movie. You don't see any of the process. You don't see her fight with her mom when she is when she tells her mom it could be one of a number of men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, you just see her saying, do you guys know I had an abortion last week? So it plays incredibly mm. strangely. And at that point, we're already like invested in Lisa's emotions, but also s- highly skeptical of anything that comes out of her mouth. It yeah, could be right. uh, in, in that version of the movie, it could be a lie for her to get a reaction. And right. she, and it reflects how flailing she is at the moment. Or it could, it could, it could just as easily be true as not true, which mm. like pulls off this really interesting effect in the movie, um, uh, in that version of it at least. But it, it's so similar it's so to me weird. to the Ruffalo scene too, because it's another one yeah. where she just sort of charges into this scene. She has in her mind, I think, a reaction she wants to pull out of Matt Damon. Yeah. Right? She wants to make him uncomfortable. She wants to sort of put him on the spot. She doesn't Mm. get out of his reaction what she wants. And so then she has to completely like change course and change tactic. And it's so Mm. it's, it's fascinating to watch that because you almost want to just be like, what did you want out of what, what were you looking for out of this exactly? And to watch her sort of be stymied kind of in that way by 
um i can't remember her the the actress's name but she was in mare of east town um she was the uh oh yeah uh the one friend who was angry at kate kate winslet in mare of east town um but sort of her presence there nicholson no um the one who was the one whose daughter had been uh had been missing at the beginning of the show who uh, kate was never able to find her remember and then she was like uh she was pissed at kate um I can't mm. remember her name. Anyway, uh, but I think sort of her presence in that scene, almost sort of like Rosemary DeWitt's, kind of uh, changes the the alchemy of it a little bit. But um, oh, oh yeah. I wanted to ask because I can't remember whether this scene was in the theatrical or not. But the the play rehearsal scene where the, it's not the in dr- the theatrical one. It's not okay. I didn't think so. But the where the drama it's teacher- the scene with Sarah Steele. Oh. Yes, so but great. yes, but yeah, be, uh, where yes, where she and Sarah Steele sort of have the tearful sort of like, I'm sorry, I wasn't there for you after the thing that happened with the lady. <laughs> um, but also the fact that like, um, what is her name, Angie, who was who was in the argument with Lisa in class about the war oh, yeah. and about uh, Afghanistan and Iraq or whatever, that she's just mm-hmm. like, I don't feel like I'm a part of this at all, and I know that like from a tech perspective, we really don't feel valued in all this. Oh it's yeah, just, like the just the omnidirectional kind of self-centeredness of everybody and the way that like this drama teacher is encouraging them all to sort of indulge in those sort of and just like sitting there with a smile on his face through all of this so it's like this whole exercise is about fueling something for him too so it's like making these kids do this is a self-serving act for this teacher director whoever well and you wonder you're just like oh how are these self-centered little monsters created and it's just like oh right this kind of thing (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also, like, it sort of underlines the fact that this movie is such a great theater movie, too. Like, it has, in the depiction of J. Smith Cameron and, like, her life and how rich and textured that is, and also sort of, sort of, like, like, very nicely, actually, uneventful. Like, it's a job. That's where she goes to work every night, and she's very invested in it and everything, but it's a job. And then, but then to have also the fact that Anna Paquin's, like, running the soundboard is perfect in every yes. single way that she's controlling everyone's volume. And yeah. yeah. Um, and then like to have this hilarious sort of, I'm sorry scene is so spectacularly great because it's not condescending to these people. It's just depicting it honestly. And it, which makes it even yeah. funnier. Well, that's why all of the classroom scenes to me are sort of like that too, where it's just like, yeah. it's, it's both, it's irritating to actually sit through because it's just like it's teenagers being their most sort of I mean, you've mentioned Strident, but like it's their most sort of like certain of their own. Like you give a teenager a little bit of knowledge about the world and all of a sudden they know everything about it. And it's <laughs> and they're just sort of like just screaming at each other. And then it's also the the scene where they're talking about. Uh, Shakespeare about King Lear and that one oh curly haired kid where he's just like, why isn't it about the fact that the gods are are you know don't <laughs> regard us all as flies? And I think I'm right. And Broderick is finally just like, it's not what it's about. That's not what Shakespeare intended. And just like I, the absolute it's frustration. Just not. <laughs> it's I just not. There have... are scholars. There's and he's just like what like nine people in France in the 17th century. And he's just like, shut <laughs> up. Just shut up. And then he like goes back to sipping his orange juice. I have that written down <laughs> on my pad of paper of is this an unofficial sequel to election that this is actually Mr. McAllister. One hundred percent. Now teaching Wait, at the so, Upper West Side School. All right, we're at the hour mark. We really should talk about the production controversy of this. Chris, do you want to oh. sort of uh uh 
walk us through what exactly uh, happened here? Yes. After I bring up one note, and oh, I yes. am not Sorry. trying to cinema sins this movie, I have to talk about this. <laughs> Go because for it. I... Oh, I, yes, you do. The, the thing that I was caught up on, like, I love that this movie has an incredibly fluid um, relationship to time. Like, yes. by the end of the movie, I think a lot less time has passed than it feels mm-hmm. like it has, which feels, you know, right for a movie about a teenager. <laughs> but in regards to, like, this being a a theater movie i do have some questions because how long is j smith's cameron off broadway play in previews because (laughs) the day of the accident is when jean renault meets j smith cameron and is like i've seen this twice already okay it's in previews and then like some time passes and then lisa and her mom have a fight and her mom's like the opening is in two weeks and i'm like the the preview run of this whatever play is longer than most off-broadway production it's clearly the play from clouds of sils maria right that they're in like clearly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just boardrooms and i don't know what it uh, is adapted like, for what, american audiences by like daniel sullivan what oh, is God. the great broadway play about boardrooms that all of a sudden all of these other fictionalized plays are being set there i, was, I can't think of one single you know, know. famous play you that also was set in this sort of corporate setting and that's the name of the play right yeah that's <laughs> i love that it's called like controversy and there's an ad for it on the subway when Anna Paquin's going into the subway and it's like a picture of J. Smith Cameron with like a red background. It's so great. It does feel like it's supposed to be some kind of like like Neil LeBute kind of a thing, right? Like controversy sure. feels like the name of a of a Neil LeBute play. Yeah, that it's like sort that, of right? it like it definitely has that feel of like office like sexual politics because there's that like 100%. sort of icy blonde woman next to Josh Hamilton. Yeah, clearly Josh Hamilton's playing a son of a bitch. I don't know. We don't see enough about him. But, like, you know that, like, come on. Josh Hamilton's yeah. not playing a nice guy in that. Yeah, no. exactly. But anyway. Yeah, that play seems bad. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> but I do actually kind of love how, like you mentioned, it is, like, just it's just a job for her but like what's interesting in terms of like this movie's relationship to like your experience in relation to other people is like she has a job that like strangers in elevators will just talk to her about and like they seem to know and are more interested in it than she is and yeah i i I think that's interesting for her character because we do get a little bit of it in a different way to what we are experiencing with lisa yeah there's also that great scene on the rooftop where she Mm. j smith cameron and john renault are talking about how uh Ever since the review came out and the review was positive, and now the audiences that had been sort of middling mm. on it now are giving them this great standing ovation at the end. And she's just like, she's talking about it. She's like, it's kind of annoying when all of a sudden you, you know, you can't really trust your audience's reaction. And, and he's sort of pushing back and just like, why wouldn't you just be happy about it? And, yeah. and she's like, no, a lot of actors uh, uh, think this way. And Patrick, as an actor, Oh, I yeah. would like to know the the veracity of that. Is that a phenomenon you've ever oh. noticed? And does it make you think less of your audiences? Oh, well, it definitely, definitely happens. And I'll tell you one, you know, one t- the way it can really happen and be really, that's when you do start really judging them is I remember doing a show that was in previews and it was 
doing really well. People loved it. People were very sort of like, this is crazy and really fun and having a great time. And then it got a Times review that was not good. And then all of a sudden, everybody was sort of like arms folded. The audiences were arms folded and no, like it was just this kind of chill coming from the audience. Yeah, just being like, okay, we have tickets for this dud, you know, and then, you know, sometimes they'd be won over by the end because it was like it actually did please crowds very often. But like, yeah, yeah, it's a really strange thing. I mean, I can't I guess it's unavoidable and I don't really I always. Yeah. I always think about, I think, in fact, I maybe even talked about it on this podcast before, the the Andrea Martin and Pippin of it all, where uh-huh. at one point it was remarked in either the Times or in one of the reviews or something about that, about how the audience erupted into spontaneous standing ovation after Andrea Martin's big trapeze number, which, mm. for the record, was astounding and was really fantastic and like fully well-deserved. <laughs> but then every time thereafter... After this spontaneous standing ovation. Oh, yeah. Then now, all of the subsequent crowds did it every single time. And yeah. I'm like, and it's not that it's not deserved, but it also feels like this kind of manufactured spontaneity, which I find totally. deeply annoying because it's just like, it just yeah. have your own authentic experience, authentic experience. I got, I felt that way a little bit when there were like, the rowdy cat screenings were the very first yeah. one where people were just like, everybody spontaneously sang along to Mr. Mistopheles and just like, mm-hmm. and then everybody else seemed like they were chasing their own little moment with that. And it's just like, mm-hmm. I get it. I get the, I, the we all want to have fun with this. And I do too. But it also feels like it's a little bit of like, you know, have your, get your own, you know, moment of spontaneous joy, like to, to quit cribbing yeah. off the student next to you kind of a thing. hundred percent. I mean, yeah, I think I feel the same way. And I mean, the other like quick sidebar that like about reviews and things, that scene where Anna Paquin is reading her the review and she mm-hmm. stumbles over the word bravura and she's like, <laughs> and Jay Smith Cameron goes, bravura. Like, <laughs> it's so good. If there's any word that she knows and has been waiting for, it's Bravura. Yeah, it's so fantastic. Jay uh, Smith Cameron think, in this movie. Uh, we got to yeah. say, we got to take a moment. Incredible. So good. Uh, in my view of this movie, it should have gotten three supporting actress nominations. It should have gotten Jeannie mm. Berlin, Allison Janney, and Jay Smith Cameron. Like that's one thousand percent. Yeah, in a oh very strong year for supporting actress. I was sort of looking at my own sort of list the other day. I was just like, where did I put mm. everybody? And like, I already like my ballot that year was already sort of crowded, and it's none of the Oscar nominees. No shade to like, you know, yeah, uh, any of the women who were nominated that I year. I mean, but this like, is the same year as Young Adult. Like, this is very filled with fe- this year is very oh, yeah. filled with female performances that I am like justice for X. My ballot mm. is Carrie Mulligan and Shame. It's the three mm. women from Margaret are are in my top. I did sort of a top six. Carrie Mulligan and Shame. Uh, uh, Amy Ryan and Win Win is up there. Rose Byrne so and Bridesmaids, which like again, like McCarthy is nominated for Bridesmaids, and there is nothing I don't like about that performance. I love it, yeah. but like Rose Byrne's even better, I think. And yeah. the one that nobody's ever really has seen is uh, Digmara Dominic in uh, this movie called Higher Ground that Vera Farmiga oh, started yeah. and also directed. And it was the first time I had ever really noticed Digmara Dominic in it, who also Chris and I have enthused about this year for her performance in The Lost Daughter. because so she good. Freaking rules in that. She's yeah. so scary. Every word out of her mouth is innocuous, but she will 
kill you. Mm-hmm. She will murder so you good. on that beach. Yeah. Um, and then again, and it's like I said, it's Jeannie Berlin, uh, J. Smith Cameron, Allison Janney. It's Ugh. and also Sarah Paulson for Martha Marcy May Marlene, which was another movie. Yeah. We gotta do oh, that yeah. at some point. We gotta cover that. Uh, to this list, I I mean my ballot would be something like that, but I would also throw in Colette Wolf in Young Adult. Yep. yep. Um which another will great do that brief too. performance. Yep. But that movie doesn't work if she doesn't give the exact performance Absolutely. that she does in that scene. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um I do think it's a good transition point to talk about like that whole line of, well, suddenly the audiences are, you know, giving standing ovations, etc. Oh, in yeah. In terms of it's, like oh, yeah. the production history and eventually talking about how we think it would be received, because like I remember when this was coming. Like, everybody was like, oh, this was released two weeks ago and we didn't notice. And, like, I was somebody who kind of hounded the production history of this movie for years because, like you were saying earlier, yeah. Patrick, it was like this movie is just, like, lingering around yeah. like the white shark for everybody. And it's partly because there was, like, two set photos of it, one of which is, like, Matt Damon and Anna Paquin having coffee in a coffee shop. And the other one was like a paparazzi photo of her covered in a blanket and her face is bloody. Oh, yeah. So it's like, what the hell is Kenneth Lonergan up to in this movie? (laughs) And like, we don't know. And there was some reporting and I tried to way back machine it to like get specifics. But like there was some like you know leaked information of like mm-hmm. what is this movie about why is it taking so long it's all in the edit the apparently it's running over three hours etc blah, blah blah um but i think when the release actually happened like there weren't that many initial reviews and people were dismissive and i think people were dismissive because mm-hmm. they knew the production history of it like yeah the the immediate response wasn't you know this masterpiece has been buried the immediate response is this is a troubled production this movie right. is tainted mm-hmm. in somehow in some yeah. way and that's where you get these people that are initially like seeing that theatrical cut and being like oh well it's a mess mm-hmm. you know right which and again like there is i think there is something to that where the the theatrical cut does feel like it's not especially when you compare it to the director's cut. It does feel like there is not the fullness of a vision there, right? The the, the painting It's not all going the to, to the all edges. the places, though I do feel it, all the places that like clearly Lonergan wants to go and like yeah. having some of those even full plot threads but then also just like the kind of way that some scenes breathe, the soundscape of the movie is not mm. the same. Right. Um, so yeah. just to sort of like bullet point it through this process. So the movie's filmed in 2005. Uh, Fox Searchlight planning to release it, I imagine, in 2006. But Lonergan can't decide on a cut for it that he is comfortable with there was a mandate at the studio level that the movie come in at a certain runtime and he was not able to come up with a cut that he was satisfied with that would fit that runtime and this sort of went on for years like 2006 passes nothing Mm -hmm. 2007 2008 ultimately and partly it's not just 
Searchlight. It's also the financier, this producer who is, who sticks kind of even to the, uh, contractual obligation of Lonergan in this running time more than seemingly the studio does because Hmm. what eventually happens is Lonergan turns in a cut that he's not happy with, et cetera, to the studio in 0809, something like that. And and this producer is still like fighting against this cut of the movie. Mm -hmm. And, basically it it seems like like this this guy is the reason that there are all these uh lawsuits because searchlight sues him he countersues and sues lonergan as well and basically once these lawsuits happen the movie can't be released until Mm. until that's basically resolved by the time that it does get to theaters the lawsuits are still ongoing but they come to some type of agreement um in that time, uh, Martin Scorsese becomes involved, and he makes a cut of the movie and that Thelma is somewhere, yeah. huh? And Thelma Schoonmacher. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they they come up with a cut of the movie, supervised or at least in you know interaction with Lonergan, and it's somewhere between the theatrical and the extended version. Uh, in terms of length, and they were going to take this to Toronto. It would have been right. the world premiere of the movie, and this this producer stopped that from happening. Yeah. Um, there's a lot right. of confusion so, that people think that the theatrical cut is the Scorsese cut, and I think that's how mm-hmm. right. there were some miscommunications in the reporting of the movie initially, 100%. but the, the theatrical cut is assembled by Lonergan. He's just not happy with it. And then this extended cut He's happier with it, but it's not complete. Like there's, there's like you can tell that there's moments that are like stand-in audio. It's mm-hmm. not like yeah. fully sound mixed. You know, some of it doesn't even look like it's color corrected. On top of like it's in a low def um, yeah. release. Like it only yeah. exists. You can stream it, but like physically, yeah. it only ever has been released on the DVD. Um, yeah. Criterion Channel, I'm I'm curious about the streaming life of this movie because I know when it was on Criterion Channel, they were only showing the extended cut. Yeah, um, I don't know what the HBO Max one was. I think that um, was the theatrical because that was I remember it used to sort of constantly be showing on HBO. It would be like you turn on HBO or HBO two. And there would you'd see like, you know, Anna Paquin screaming at Gene That's Berlin. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the but, so the the thing about the producer too, this uh, Gary Gilbert, who uh, yeah, fellow sportsy is listening to this. Uh, he is along with his brother co-owners of the Cleveland Cavaliers basketball team, which sort of famously his brother more than him got the flack for this, but kind of uh, sort of not ran LeBron James out of town the first time, but certainly like created the environment that LeBron James would want to leave that team for eventually the Miami Heat which was a very sort of like a, a controversial uh, moment and uh, Dan Gilbert the the brother of this guy Gary Gilbert sort of caught a lot of public uh, flack and deservedly so for uh, running his superstar out of town and so and then after LeBron James left he sort of badmouthed him in the press and whatever and these guys just seem like a bunch of schmucks and well and 
also part of his contract with Lonergan as a financier apparently had a stipulation that he would finance Margaret and then basically have Lonergan on loan to do rewrites or polishes on one of his projects. Hmm, And then once they settled this court, uh, settled this in court with Gary Gilbert, one of the stipulations I believe is that um, Lonergan has to pay him up to $50,000 of his salary from any studio writing project he has i guess indefinitely uh right. lonergan has not had a studio writing assignment <laughs> since them and to oh, that i manchester say good by on the you sea. kenny manchester by the sea doesn't count for that no manchester by the mm. sea was produced independently and then was bought produced by independently amazon and bought yeah. uh, oh right uh, that's right for i can't of course it's Amazon. For some reason, I was just like, that's another searchlight. Because um, it does feel like a searchlight. Uh, yeah, because there was the one uh, before Manchester came along, there was the one article I was reading there where there was like, if mm-hmm. Kenneth Lonergan just wants to keep writing plays for the rest of his life, he doesn't have to pay this guy a red cent. And right. um, well, I'm glad to learn that he, uh, he wasn't get, getting paid. When you as a producer uh, are coming across when you allow scott rudin to look like the good guy in a relative situation <laughs> it's not a really great position to be in uh, yeah. if you're gary gilbert the producers on this movie rudin was a producer also producers on this movie were Sidney pollack and anthony Mangella, both of whom had died by the time this movie had made it into theaters which mm-hmm. like yeah. you talk about like the span of when you know this movie was made to when this movie was released um it also this sort of having nothing to do with the the production history of it all. And I do want to jump back into that because like the what if mm. of that is really interesting. Um, mm. But uh, pursuant to the J. Smith Cameron thing, the fact that there mm. are so many succession cast members on this, this <laughs> oh, man. is really fantastic. Uh, J. Smith Cameron, Kieran Culkin, they don't share a scene. So we can't see if the crackling sexual chemistry that exists now uh, existed back then. Uh, Jeannie Berlin obviously has also been on mm. uh, a few episodes of succession. I dearly wish more because i love her character so much um yeah but anyway three, she just like showed up and didn't speak well she was in season two in that one episode where tom gets transferred to the news division and she's sort of the boss of mm, their mm-hmm. news division and she kind of like you know tells him where to go which is a really fantastic scene um uh sid peach also what a name her character in succession <laughs> sid peach <laughs> Fucking hell, I love it so much. Um, It's also fascinating to me, we didn't really talk about Jeannie Berlin's performance, but since you bring her up, it is fascinating to me because she's Elaine May's daughter. And like when you read what Kenneth Lonergan went through with this movie, it sounds like a lot of the shit Elaine May had to deal with. Oh, yeah. And that then Elaine May played his mother in the Waverly Gallery on Broadway. Oh, right. Or grandmother, excuse me, grandmother. Yeah. I didn't even make that connection. That's so funny. Um, I did make the Kieran Culkin connection because he was in um, the production of oh, oh, This Is Our Youth. I, this Is Our Youth As that I saw Pat, on Broadway. Right? This Is Our no. Youth. Well, Paquin did it in London with Jake Gyllenhaal and um, right. Um, oh dear, uh, uh, Hayden Christensen, and that was also oh wow why um she got cast or how she got this job was that Lonergan saw her do it and so he was at the beginning stages of writing Margaret and he was like well she's actually really right for Lisa and she sort of then became who she who he was sort of writing for that's fantastic the one the one that I saw was uh 
Kieran Culkin, Michael Sarah, and then um oh what's her name? Oh the, Tavi uh, Gavinson. Uh, Tavi Gavinson was uh was the uh the role that Anna Pacman had played. And so she wasn't the best. I thought Kieran was quite good, actually. He was my favorite part of it. Um interesting show though. Uh so back By to all the indication produ- this producer is the reason why. Yes. It was so oh. tumultuous because yeah. even at a certain point, it doesn't sound like Searchlight was always happy with Lonergan and, you know, just wanted a cut of the movie. Sure. Uh, because at some point they were ready to release it. And yeah, this they guy... signed off on a cut, I think, in 2008. Well, right. I yeah. think Fox Searchlight is smart enough to know that, like, I would love to know what kind of return Gary Gilbert was expecting to get on this movie. Right. Like, even in the yeah. best of circumstances, how much movie is the best version, the most commercial version of Margaret going to make, <laughs> honestly? Like, this is the thing. And I feel like Searchlight ultimately probably was just like, yeah, you know what? Like, we know the the economy at work here, right? We know mm. the relative scale of these movies. Like, you're not going to be making millions and millions of dollars off of this movie no matter what like i know you can count on me i don't need, i don't remember what scale of success that was but that was like a decidedly indie triumph that like yeah it got awards and it got you know a boost from being uh you know an oscar nominated movie but mm. I don't know what version of Margaret you could watch and be like, yeah, we can make some money off of this. <laughs> like, and, well, and, which sort of leads me to my sort of my uh, hypothetical situation, which is, yeah, say this movie comes out in 06 or 07 or 08, sometime, you know, in that yeah. span. It plays Toronto. It is either a two and a half hour or a three hour cut, whatever, however that would shake out. Uh, in terms of what this movie was. Mm-hmm. I think this movie takes a long time for people to come around to its greatness. I agree. No matter what. No matter I what. I mean, I think if you if you look at it in a vacuum of mm. if this was released on time, even if it was released as the best version of this movie, mm-hmm. I mean, yes. what Lonergan is kind of after is not you know necessarily the most audience friendly type right. of thing yeah right. um and, and like it requires you have to be kind of a rigorous audience yeah. member for this movie and watching this I in think... the midst of a toronto film festival where you're watching three other movies that day there's no or way even just you're in a be... theatrical release you know like uh-huh. i think audiences aren't necessarily prepared for like movies like this certainly not on the scale that like searchlight would have launched it at and i think also lonergan coming off of you can count on me would Mm. really um well that's the other thing is it would factor into people's expectations of what this is supposed to be i think because like go ahead the earliest that this movie could have come out would have been six years after You Can Count on Me. So, like, even uh-huh. the earliest version of this movie, you would have six years of expectation for what's the next Kenneth Lonergan movie. There's no way that that wouldn't have led to a whole lot of, like, oh, disappointing sophomore effort from Kenneth Lonergan. I've, I wonder, though, like, what if it had premiered at New York instead of Toronto? What would that have done? And, like, what I don't, I could see it, though, being something that 
the critics got be- some critics got behind like New York film critics or something like that. I think if you release it early enough in the year where you have yeah. several months for the critics to like national society of film critics yeah. decide to be a little contrarian about things sort of throw <laughs> an interesting one. And they like, cause one of the articles that I read about this was that the, the hopes for a release mm-hmm. with, um, with the, the team Margaret hashtag was, let critics see this movie because like for as much as Searchlight was like, listen, we, you know, we released this into theaters. Critics were able to see it in September when we released it, but like it really was snuck out there. And Mm -hmm. the team at at like one of the busiest times for critics, like when they would have screened that movie, critics would have already, especially in like New York and LA, that's Mm -hmm. when critics would have been screening, uh, you know, stuff for New York festival. Like, yeah. Right. And yeah. so the idea for this hashtag Team Margaret thing that happened on Twitter, which was, again, people, this movie got snuck out into a release at the end of September. A lot of people didn't realize it. And it was like there and gone. And by the time people had sort of realized that mm. certain critics who saw it then were like, this is really something special. Not all of them, but like enough of them that mm. as the weeks went on, People were like, well, now I wish I'd been able to see this movie. Now could they send screeners so that we could maybe vote for it? And maybe we could, you know, make Mm -hmm. this into maybe Anna Paquin can get a stray, you know, best actress citation from some uh, out of the way critics group or something like that. Some some way that would allow critics to sort of build a drumbeat for this movie. And so that's Mm -hmm. where this hashtag and also a change.org petition uh, was created <laughs> to kind of build up this uh, impetus for Fox Searchlight to re-release the movie. It wasn't even about the director's cut. Like, that was yeah. beside the point. It was get mm-hmm. this movie back into theaters so that critics can well, see it and audiences can see it and so that there can be some sort of, uh, you know, insurgency for this movie that ultimately never well, happened. I mean, even forget a director's cut at this point, because at this point... This is the only cut of the movie that we know that exists because Lonergan yes. wasn't doing really press for it at the time, partly right. because he couldn't. It was still right. in litigation. And yes. by the time they actually get an interview with him, I and I was trying to find this, but like it looks like some of these have been like scrubbed from the internet. Mm. Um, I remember him saying in an interview, I can't talk about certain things right. still. Yeah. Right. You know, he can talk obliquely about the movie and such but like we we don't even know that there's like other cuts of it at that point yeah i think the cut that's the long cut we didn't know about until the blu-ray because it wasn't even on like the the actual dvd it was like only on the blu-ray can you see this extended cut that then became like oh you gotta see that or you haven't seen the movie right yeah yeah um so before we get into i feel like there's still plenty of things to talk about this movie. Like we could do a four hour podcast on this movie, but before we get (laughs) any further, I do want to mention that this is our sixth Alice and Janney movie that we've done on this podcast, which uh, a momentous occasion to be sure we commemorate the sixth time we have covered a film by certain uh, featuring a certain actor with a uh, six timers sort of memorialization and we give i give usually just chris a quiz on the six movies that we have covered and patrick oh, since you are our guest 
For this momentous episode, we would of course like to invite you to join in, and you and Chris can both uh, participate in this quiz, and you can hell yeah go up against each other <laughs> head to head, see if you can beat me. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> I, I have enough questions. I have an even number of questions, so I should be able to uh, uh, go. To you guys can take turns. If one of you misses, the other one can steal. And mm. uh, so if you have uh, something to jot down, just so you have the titles in front of you, the six mm. Alice and Janney movies that we have covered on this podcast have been The Ice Storm, Ang Lee's The Ice Storm, mm. The Girl on the Train, uh, Alice and Janney, of course, playing the uh, police detective, Mr. Mrs. Policewoman, uh, we gave you all the clues <laughs> to The Girl on the Train, uh, Hairspray, playing, um, what's Penny Pingleton's mom's name? Verna? Is it? Prudy? Prudy, thank you. She looks like a Verna. Um, <laughs> Nurse Betty, She's uh, she was working on the soap opera in Nurse Betty. The Way, Way Back. God, she's so funny in The Way, Way Back. I love her so much. Um, uh, Randy, uh, uh, vacation neighbor in The Way, Way Back. And then, of course, Margaret. So, six movies. One of the answers to these questions will be one or more of these movies. Patrick, as our guest, we are going to invite you to go first. Okay. So for you, and I'm going to keep score. All right. Let me just write down your little names here. Patrick. Chris. All right. Question one. For Patrick, which Mm. of those six films is the longest? Well, (laughs) this is a tough one. Um, I'm going to guess Margaret. In any version of Margaret, yes, the <laughs> Margaret is the longest one. Chris, up to you. Which is the shortest? Um, is it uh, how long is Nurse Betty? Is it the way way back? It's the way way back at one hundred and three minutes. Nurse Betty is close. I think uh, one of the other ones is also like there are a few of them that are within a few minutes of each other. But the way way back mm. is the shortest at one hundred and three. All right, Patrick. Mm. Which was the lowest rated on Rotten Tomatoes? Oh, uh, I mean, I hope it's the girl on the train. It is the girl on the train. 44% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's too high. Alice and Janney's Six Timers is like a remarkably well-reviewed Six Timers. Like, Way Way Back is the only really uh, uh, poorly reviewed one of the bunch. So uh, good for Allison on this. Uh, Chris, which was the highest rated on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to say because of, like, how it's skewed by the 90s, it's the ice storm. It's not the ice storm. Patrick, (gasps) you can steal. Oh, snap. Um, I'm going to say Hairspray. It is Hairspray at 91%. Hell yeah. Tomatoes. All right. So Patrick with the steal is up three to one after the first four questions. All right. So Patrick, then this question is back to you because uh, Mm. you did steal. Which film made the most money worldwide? Well, oh, I'm going to say Hairspray. Hairspray. $203.5 million worldwide. What uh, did Girl Chris, on the Train get? Oh, let me bring that up. Hold on a second. Um, The Girl I on the Train the worldwide. The Girl on the Train is second place. Yeah. 173.2 million. I can't <laughs> yeah, imagine Jesus. anything else approaches that. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, Chris, which film made the least money worldwide? 
Margaret, baby. Margaret, baby. <laughs> 623,000 and change for Margaret. Oof. Yeah. Oh. All right. Patrick, back to you. Mm. Which of these films has a score by Danny Elfman? Oh, Girl on the Train. Yes, The Girl on the Train. Very yeah. good. All right. Chris, which two films played the Cannes Film Festival? Uh, the Ice Storm. Yes. And Nurse Betty. Mm. And Nurse Betty, correct. Very good. All right. Patrick, which one film played the Sundance Film Festival? Okay. Oh, The Way Way Back. The Way Way Back. Very good. All right. Currently, Patrick with six, Chris with three. Uh, Chris, this is your question. Which film won an AARP Movies for Grownups Award? (laughs) (laughs) The Way Way Back. The Way Way Back won for Best Comedy. It was also nominated for uh, Steve Carell and Allison Janney both got supporting nominations. But yes, uh, The Way Way Back. So point for Chris. Patrick, which film won a BAFTA? Oh, oh. Uh, oh. Uh oh. Is it okay, hold on. It better not fucking be the girl on the train, goddamn. Uh the ice storm. The ice storm is correct. Yes! Best best <laughs> supporting actress for Sigourney Weaver, the ice storm. Alright. Hell yeah. Chris, which film was released on the same weekend as Soul Food? Oh, that has to be the ice storm. That is the ice storm. Very yeah. good. Alright, so there we go. All right, Patrick, mm. which film was released on the same weekend as The Lone Ranger? Oh, no. The most problematic film in history. <laughs> oh, God. As it turns Cursed out. Cursed movie. <laughs> oh, no. Um, oh, jeez. Oh, yeah, I think, is, is, is it Hairspray? It is not Hairspray. Chris, but, can you steal? It is the way, way back. Yeah. It is the way, way back. Very good. Yeah. Chris is back in the game. All right, and now, Chris, this is your question. Besides Alice and Janney herself, which is the only film to not star an Oscar winner for acting? Ooh, no, I almost said the wrong thing. It is The Ice Storm. It is not The Ice Storm. Kevin Klein is an Oscar. Kevin Klein is an Oscar winner. Patrick, can you steal? Repeat the question so that that's. Besides Alice and Janney herself. Okay. Which is the only film not to star an Oscar winner for acting? Not to star an Oscar winner for acting. Oh, hold up. This is actually... I think you might have been a little tricky here. Is it Am Hairspray? I? It's not Hairspray. Hairspray oh. stars Christopher Walken. Oh, So no it. points for anybody. The answer is, is The Girl on the Train. Yeah, oh. I got it late. Uh, uh, Zellweger and Freeman, uh, Renee Zellweger and Morgan Freeman are both Oscar winners uh, in Nurse Betty. Sam Rockwell in The Way Way Back is an Oscar winner. And of course, Anna Paquin in Margaret. So no points for anybody. So, um, Chris, that was your question, right? To start? Yep. All right, Patrick. Which two movies feature stars of the movie Face Off? Okay, well, (laughs) one is Hairspray. One is Hairspray, John Travolta, yes. Um, Nurse Betty. 
Incorrect. All right, oh, since he it. got half of it, Chris, you can get a half a point of a steal. <laughs> okay, it's the Ice Storm. It's Joan oh, Allen. Right, it's Joan Allen in the Ice Storm. So get plus 0.5. All right. So now, Chris, this is your question. Which two movies feature stars of Little Miss Sunshine? Uh, the Way Way Back. Way Way Back, which has two, actually, Steve Carell and yes, Tony Yes, it does. Um, and... Ooh, say Abigail Breslin, Paul Dano, Tony Collette, Greg Kinnear. Oh, Nurse Betty, Greg Kinnear. Nurse Betty, Greg Kinnear. Very good. All right. So, currently, Patrick with seven, Chris with seven and a half, and we only have a few <laughs> more questions to go. <laughs> Patrick... Yeah. Which which movies feature which uh which one movie features two stars of Romy and Michelle's high school reunion and which are the two stars? Oh, okay. <laughs> Dear God. I mean are we going with I'm, okay. Oh Jesus Christ. Um So it's just is... one movie. So you just have to pick the movie that has mm. Anybody I'm from trying, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion in it? Well, I'm trying to like reteam people from Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. So I'm like, is Cameron Mannheim one of them? Or is it Alan Cumming? Or Mira Sor- it's not Mira Sorvino because she's not in any of these. And it's not Kudro. Is it Garofalo? Oh, damn it. Uh, um, I'm just going to guess the way, way back. It's not the way, way back. Chris, can you steal? I can. It's the girl on the train, and it's Justin Theroux and Lisa Kudrow. Ah! Exactly right. Lisa Kudrow uh, is another girl on the train, the girl on the train, uh, who knows the secret of the deviled eggs. And Justin Theroux is in Romeo and Michelle as the mysterious smoking cowboy. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, point for Chris. Chris, this is your question. Which movie has Mark Platt as a credited producer? (laughs) <laughs> hmm. hairspray no incorrect ah! steal um you know what i'm just i'm gonna say nurse betty it is not nurse betty no points for anybody he's a credited mm. producer on the girl on the train oh, Jesus. <laughs> all right patrick your yeah. last question okay. which film is rated pg for language some suggestive content and momentary teen smoking well, that's hairspray. That is hairspray. Very good. Point for Patrick. Mm. Teen Chris, smoking. which film is rated R for strong language, sexuality, some drug use, and disturbing images? Nurse Betty. Incorrect. That is Margaret. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was going to give Patrick a chance to steal. Oh, shoot. Oh, that's all and that's right. going to matter. I think I he technically guessed... won, though. I don't know. Uh, actually, no, but I'm going to come up with another question, so hold on a second, because uh, Patrick... <laughs> Uh, as of right now is half a point behind and I want to give well, him a while, chance to win while you're looking one of the things that I'd love about Margaret is the teen smoking speaking of teen smoking I love that like scene where they're all out there and like Lisa's talking about whatever and they're just pretending to be jaded high schoolers <laughs> all right. Lisa smokes a lot in the movie she smokes a like lot and like mom. right and like in her and Kieran Culkin in her own house all right mm. for Patrick uh-oh. Hold on a second. <laughs> uh, 
Absolutely. All right, for Patrick, which are the two movies based on novels? Okay, 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 okay. Well, it's not Hairspray, and uh, it's... Oh, Girl on the Train and the Way, Way Back. It is Girl on the Train, yes, not the Way, Way Back. So, Chris, you can also get a half point for a steal. It's the Ice Storm. Oh, right. It's the Ice Storm and the Girl on the Train. All right, so final scores. Patrick with eight, Chris with nine. Chris ekes it out by a point. Uh, I'm proud of both of you, though. Very good job on the Austin Janney. Good game. Good game. Good game. Good sportsmanship. That's what I like to see. Good game. I can get behind these kind of sports. (laughs) All right. Um, What else do we want to talk about in this? I feel like there's still so much. Jeannie Berlin actually got a little bit of... She was the one who sort of got the late-breaking critics awards mm-hmm. stuff that like i think they wanted for anna paquin in the movie as a whole it was ultimately yeah. pretty late in the game she was a runner-up though at the national society of film critics and i need to look up who she was runner-up to because i don't have it in mm. front of me so hold on a second um but that feels like very national society of film critics, yeah right to be the one well, they're a late-breaking critics they're the last too. ones yeah they're the last big yeah. ones yeah. to do it and I mean, um, Margaret mostly did well in like critics polls uh, mm-hmm. versus critics awards, partly because those, they got those screeners so late. Um, the Boston Society went behind Margaret really well. They didn't give it a win, but it got mm. uh, four bids from them. Yeah. Well, National Society of Film Critics. Sorry, go ahead, Patrick. Oh, that just that it I did almost look better with best of the decade than best of the year stuff. We'll Absolutely. definitely get into that in a second, because yes, that was, and I think that speaks to the fact that this is a, it's a little bit of a slow burn movie. This was a movie that was never going to mm-hmm. uh, really, you know, be in, be received the way that you want it to be sort of right away. Uh, Jeannie Berlin was runner up, along with Shailene Woodley for The Descendants, were both runners up in Supporting Actress. The winner at the National Society of Film Critics was Jessica Chastain. This was her big breakthrough oh, yeah. year where she was in everything she wins for the tree of life take shelter and the help um which mm. i don't even think was all of the movies that she was in that year she was in uh oh, quite yeah. a few the death National society right? is pretty uh, good that year they gave supporting actor to albert brooks and drive i thought he was uh, quite good in that mm. uh kirsten dunst gets best actress for melancholia that was uh her big prize mm. that year um and Brad Pitt won Best Actor for Moneyball and The Tree of Life. It's always interesting to me. Kirsten Dunst wins Best Actress for Melancholia, right? Which is like the triumph for cinephiles everywhere, right? She's the she's the thinking person's choice for Best Actress, not like those dull Oscars who don't know what they're talking about. And yet Meryl for the Iron Lady is right there as a runner-up. You know what I mean? So it's just like it's the yep. it's it's the yeah. dichotomy of all of this, right? Where you can't feel too it's it's you you're really tempted to drive a narrative there right where it's like the yeah. smarty smart snobs of the national society versus <laughs> the dumb babies of the oscars and it's like but they like they were both there they were both there sort of hand in hand if anna paquin had made it into the golden globes that year she could have been in merrill's litany of actresses names <gasps> though with she could have been what about how would she have paquin. pronounced yeah how would she have paquin. pronounced that name Paquin or something. <laughs> she would have uh, called her Annie. Annie Paquin. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And she would the have said Margaret. She yes, would have called the movie oh, Margaret. 100%. In Margaret. You know. No, Again, she would have said Margaret Paquin. Oh. <laughs> or just Anna, Annie Paquin as Margaret. Yes. Uh, once again, uh, in all of that speech, my favorite part is still her calling Tilda Swinton Gilda. It's still the funniest it's the best. thing. Also, there's a crazy um, thing that happens where she says, thank you to the people of Britain for letting me trample your history. And the, the camera cuts to Madonna. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Truly, see, this is again, this is what we lose when we lose the Golden Globes. We lose stuff yeah. like this. It'll, we'll never have it again. It'll never happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, Boston Society of Film Critics. I want to bring that up to uh, Chris since you mentioned mm. it because Margaret shows up in a few places there. So, uh, runner up in ensemble cast, which, okay. I'm already plotting. Runner-up and ensemble <laughs> cast, which, first of all, this movie is runner-up to nothing when it, when it comes to ensemble cast. This movie is yeah. uh, champion. Loses to Carnage. I mean, it's such a... What? Oh, no. Oh, Carnage. I mean, terrible. it's definitely not a runner-up to Carnage where everyone <laughs> in that movie is bad. But, I mean, like, I could understand, you know, people not rallying around it as an ensemble because it does almost feel like mm. a star vehicle because sure, 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 sure. on at an 11 on every scene mm. yeah um, but to lose to carnage that's 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 an indignity that no film deserves <laughs> I would say. yeah uh runner up in best film to the artist uh hugo mm. and margaret are the two <sighs> runners Jesus. up that year which again just a, tri- a triple feature that movie i dare you I dare you to have people in the same day watch The Artist and Hugo and Margaret and just see what what madness yeah, see what happens. See oh what happens. God. I'd love to see it. Social experiment. All right. Um, screenplay, it ends up as a runner-up to uh, Aaron Sorkin and Steven Zalian for Moneyball. People really mm-hmm. love Moneyball. People like mm-hmm. to pry and pretend that Aaron Sorkin didn't write Moneyball because they like Moneyball and they don't want to give Aaron Sorkin credit for anything that they like. Um, but Margaret is a runner up there. And then the fourth one, oh, Jeannie Berlin again, runner up to Melissa McCarthy for Bridesmaids, which hmm. I think you're a winner either way going there. Yeah. Um, Boston society is always sort of willing to go off the beaten path. They kind of announce not long after New York and LA, and maybe sometimes they're mm-hmm. even in between New York yeah. and LA, but, um, uh, they have they always have some good uh, some good awards. I like Boston. Good on you, Boston. Uh, what else? What else do we want to talk about? There's still I feel like we've only scratched mm. the surface. Just the just the the you can count on me of it all, right? The fact that like Ruffalo yeah. is in this too, which almost feels like it's too big of a role to feel like a favor, but it's too small of a role to feel like it matches the stature of his sort yeah. of star persona at this point, right? And yeah. Although he's, he's in that weird moment where he's at that time, I think the movies that came out for him that year were like, just like heaven and um, yeah, uh, right. 13 going on 30. He was sort of, there was that weird two years where he did like a strange number of romantic comedies that he was, he was the most I mean, forgettable this is before Zodiac. Oh yeah. It was right before Zodiac. Right. Uh, he was the most forgettable one in rumor has it a movie that is generally oh, yeah. pretty forgettable. Like nobody remembers that he's sort of the uh, he's the cuck of that movie, right? He's the one where uh, 
Jennifer Aniston's engaged to him and she runs off with Kevin Costner for Pete's sake. Um, what an odd movie that is. We can cover that one, right, Chris? That didn't get a weird score nomination or anything like that. I think that's wrapped up in the Shirley MacLaine kind mm. of resurgence. Oh, yeah, totally. Which I feel that like we did well year. in in our in her shoes episode. Oh, definitely. But I feel like you know, always always good to keep some things in the. In the <laughs> I feel like, um, and then uh, Lonergan had that stray nomination co-nomination for writing gangs of new york which i have no idea where in that writing and rewriting process he came in because that's three three nominated screenwriters for that i'm pretty sure it was uh jay cox is one of them and hold on there's one other person i'm pretty sure is it like eric roth or a steve zalian it very well. It's Steve Zalian, actually. Yes, uh, it's uh, yeah. Jay Co- Jay Cox with the story by credit, and then Lonergan mm. and Zalian both have screenplay credits. I can't imagine they were working together on it, so it's got to be yeah, right. Um, uh, but that's they, probably all where the Scorsese connection comes in, because like Scorsese went to bat for this movie, yeah. which we should also mention when he did that edit of the movie. It was in the middle of post production on Hugo. On so. Hugo, right. Well, and, and Hugo was secret seen, screening at. Sorry, go ahead, Patrick. Oh, just that he had seen an early cut I, that that he declared a masterpiece. He was like, "This movie's right. a masterpiece." Needs yeah. to be seen. Well, and Hugo that year had screened at New York Film Festival as the secret screening, but it screened unfinished. So when I read that part about how like he took time away from Hugo post production to to edit. <laughs> Margaret, I'm like, oh, I guess that's why it wasn't finished in time for New York. I mean, it could be because what I know was unfinished about Hugo was Mm. a few of the visual effects shots, which is like, at that point, (laughs) I mean, I don't pretend to know how fully how post-production works, but like... Right. What is Scorsese doing at that point except like shepherding his vision? Signing while off on, on things. Yeah. Right. Exactly. No, but the, um, the narrative of that is just funny to me because I like the idea that uh, one last time <laughs> Margaret was uh, fucking shit up on the Upper West Side, like fucking shit up at Lincoln Center, <laughs> that uh, something was going to happen and it did not go as planned. Yeah. It's that damn Lisa Cohen making it about her. (laughs) God, Lisa Cohen as a film festival uh, programmer would be a goddamn nightmare. What movies would Lisa Cohen even like? Oh, man. That's a great question. Everything. I mean, yeah. I I love the scenes with her and J. Smith Cameron where Mm. J. Smith Cameron just starts like yelling at her and it's just like what is it this is how it sounds when you uh, i'm gonna pretend to be you and i'm gonna react to you the way you react to me and it's just like it's so immature and yet it's just so perfect to watch somebody try and meet lisa on her level in that way it's it's fantastic oh it's so good and then she just loses her cool and just like it's it's so fantastic lonergan also in his performance as her father in those scenes where he's on the phone with her underrated performance in the underrated performance so good like that sort of the malignantly distant dad who is like never does anything outright villainous and yet you're just like god you're such a problem you're part of this problem you're part of what's going on and you're part of what's wrong well, and his yeah. always asking, how is it like it's going on on the boyfriend front? And like, and he has that horrible new wife who's just like, oh. 
you know, always going Horrible. on about meals. So much about the food for <sighs> this cowboy vacation. With... What does she say? She's like, ask her if there are any foods she won't eat because we need to, they need to pre-plan the meals or whatever, which is yeah. like 18 <laughs> layers of passive aggression. The fact that she's having him funnel this con- this request through him, like it's just the most stepmother well, she says that she like emails her or texts her or something or like tried yeah. to call her at one oh. point and it's like, Oh, yeah, where it says, like, okay. you know, Annette's tried to call you, like, four times to ask you about this, but you haven't responded or something. Can I also say, somehow in this movie, Matt Damon looks younger than he did in Goodwill Hunting. Like, he looks <laughs> I know! So Matt Damon is the one that's most young. like, oh, this movie's a fucking time capsule, isn't it? Oh, yeah, man. Um, those glasses. He looks he has those so perfect young. perfect teacher glasses. And, like, this is only a couple, or this is filmed only a few years before The Informant. And I feel like that was, like, a real, like, indicative few years for Matt Damon, where he goes, because oh, yeah. this would have been released, if it was released in 06, that was the same year as, uh, uh what's he in in 06? Is he in The Good Shepherd? Like the Good Shepherd. It yeah, it's The Good Shepherd. I think he shot this, like, on a break from The Good Shepherd. And he okay. had just done, right. just done Born Supremacy. It's crazy. Right. But like he looks younger in this than he looks in Born Supremacy. I'm, I'm he looks like, like a I'm baby. Absolutely certain. He looks like an absolute child. It's crazy. Yeah. Which actually wakes those like those scenes are for me the weirdest part of the movie because it almost sometimes mm. feels like a different kind of movie is jumping in. Like it almost feels perfunctory that mm. Lisa would sleep with a teacher in this very sort of like transgressive way, right? But it's filmed in a way that like indemnifies his character as much as possible without uh obviously without like letting him off the hook but like she's really the aggressor he really like very much does not do uh you know he's not he's not actively pressuring her he's very much intimidated by her he's very much just like and and I'm not ever quite sure what to make of that. That's the most, like, this is a story about a young girl being written by a a middle-aged man. Mm. Part of that. It is the closest thing I think the movie comes to feeling extraneous. I don't know how much we get out of of that story element. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's another example of Lisa sort of taking a situation that, and, and it's entirely about her and her sort of her figure her visualization of her own narrative that she's yeah pro- like and then i had sex with my teacher and then i had an abortion and it cost four hundred dollars and like that this kind of when Jeannie berlin says this is not an opera like yes it's this yeah. sort of yet another way in which lisa Best line is esque oh my god that scene, and, that entire scene is chock full. The, the argument scene with her and Jeannie Berlin, where they get to the end of it and Lisa goes, uh, what she, I can't remember the words exactly, but she's just like, I'm not making this all about myself. I know that that's a thing that some people do, but I'm not doing it. Like, like Oh, just, yeah. And she says, <laughs> over, you, it ends with her saying, why can't you just give me a break? And then it yes. cuts, like smash cuts to her sitting on Matt Damon's sofa saying, thank you for letting me come over. Oh, my God. It's just <laughs> it's so perfect. Everything we about are it is all so not perfect. supporting characters in the grand Oh yeah, story that is your life or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then that yep. whole thing about like you can't make fiction out of other people's lives. That's how people turn into Nazis. I'm not playing games. 
don't look so outraged. You have every right to falsify your own life, but you have no right to falsify anybody else's. It's what makes people into Nazis. And I'm sorry, but it's just a little bit suspicious that you're making such a big fuss about this when you didn't even know her and you're having troubles with your own mother. Oh, my God. Wow. But this is my life that we're talking about because it's my real friend who got killed, who I'm never going to see again who I've known since I was 19 years old myself. And I don't want that sucked into some adolescent self-dramatization. I'm not fucking dramatizing anything. I was there and you weren't. And if I happen to express myself a little hyperbolically, Emily, that's just the way I talk. I can't help it if my mother's an actress. Why are you being so fucking strident? That's how, yes. That's, well, that's the, the extreme... New Yorkiness of this character, this Jeannie Berlin character, and oh. that comes out in like little stuff like that about like that's how people become Nazis. <laughs> or the dinner scene with Jean Renault where she's oh. just like, So what should these Jew occupiers do? And it's just like you could tell like the temperature just goes from like just through the floor. And and it's one of those things where you can see where it's, this conversation is going, and there's no way to get out of it because she's exactly yeah. who she is, and he, Jean Renault, is exactly who he is, and you're like, I yeah. know where this is going. I've met people before. I understand, like, <laughs> like uh, the absolute entrenchment of both of these people. It's really amazing to watch it just sort of happen, and to have Lisa be like. I didn't even want to bring this up. Like, I don't want to have this argument again. I, As if she's been like, I've been through this at school. I've totally, like, exhausted this argument. I don't need to have it again. Because, yeah. you know, the argument at school was the, the you know, Vidal-Buckley debates of, uh, oh, of, of her life. But like, she doesn't see the difference in no, those two no. arguments between no, absolutely adults not. and between children. Absolutely um, not. Because They're they are both... two very different things. Yeah. With different baggage i do think like for Jeannie berlin though she's so ideally cast especially because of that scene um between her and lisa where lisa's <laughs> the whole strident thing oh, yeah um, because like a just the dynamics of it the type of choices that Jeannie berlin makes as an actor are just like so exactly what you need to do in that scene as mm-hmm. like anna paquin is basically like sweating tears at that Mm. point um yeah but i I think it's also that scene is one of is like the only moment that really in lonergan's script it is saying what the thesis of the whole thing is and in the wrong actor's hands it Mm -hmm. could that scene could be so crunchy yeah but like yeah. Jeannie Berlin's like kind of naturalist uh, outrage yeah. uh, as a performer is so well aligned to prevent it from being that kind of didactic, right. uh, narratively didactic scene. Yeah. And everything she does is sort of so full and it has like actually the sort of whole thing going on underneath that she's what she's sort of playing in that scene is to not express all of her grief while all Lisa's doing is trying to express her grief and right. the, like that battle and her like saying, this is not how a grown up grown ups do this. Not that what you're doing. Right. Like, she's so good. Can I also say in a movie with perhaps the highest concentration of great performances by people with one or fewer lines, um, the two women staring daggers at, J. Smith Cameron at the Jean Renault character's funeral. Oh my is, god. Or memorial or whatever, <laughs> wake, whatever they're at, are 
phenomenal and perfect and tell a whole ass story in like half a second it's so good it's so wonderful incredible uh everything so many small little things about this i get i i understand for a lot of people if you could if it doesn't all coalesce for them even though ultimately Mm. it does for me but like even just like the sum of its parts all of the little there's so many scenes in this movie that i could just like watch isolated from the mm-hmm. other ones you know any number of the yeah. classroom scenes the any uh, of the you know the genie berlin lisa mm-hmm. scenes obviously the bus crash is like its own little uh opera in and of itself the final scene okay let's talk about the final scene and then oh, maybe yeah. we can start to wrap up as we are at the two hour mark <laughs> um a long episode for margaret who would have guessed who would have thought so, Chris, this is the second uh, movie in the last, what, four that we've done to, to have a emotional climactic breakthrough at, oh, right. the, uh, at the Metropolitan Opera House. So they – and that's – it's Renee Fleming on stage, right? That's yeah, – uh, Yes. Uh, yeah. Our uh, first Renee Fleming film. <laughs> Five more to go for six-timer Renee Fleming. Um, <laughs> and it's – it's interesting the way that scene is lit. I've never been to the opera, so I don't know whether it's a different standard of uh, house lights there, where obviously we it almost feels like there is lighting on them specifically. Mm. And sort of like, I'm I'm always amazed watching that scene and like, how is everybody else not just sort of watching them go through this emotional <laughs> catharsis where they like just start like hugging each other and sort of like breaking down in the middle of this <laughs> You do kind of see the woman next to them get a little uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> like some old lady would have like hissed at them and just be like, we're watching oh, yeah, the like, show. Yeah. yeah, somebody from the Lincoln Plaza crowd would have been like, you know, rustled the 100%. plastic bag and said, shut up, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As they're like unwrapping their little, right. you know, strawberry candy or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, just a phenomenal scene, though. Just a phenomenal, so like wordless. You can see exactly what's going on. The culmination of their entire story in this movie, and yet a lot of it, you don't ever get the sense that, like, well, Lisa's solved it. Just be, she's mm. had this breakthrough yeah. with this mom, so like now it's all better and it's just like no this one or even that it's conclusive for their relationship i buy that they have another like fight even if it's a small one on the cab ride home right but it is a moment where they see each other it is very much just like Mm -hmm. and this this veil that had been between them of like being unable to see especially from lisa's end towards her mother being unable to see uh what they're going through and and they really you can watch that veil just sort of fall in between them it's really phenomenal it's such unbelievable like as jay smith cameron starts to see that paquin's having that reaction and then her mm. having her reaction and reaction to the reaction and the reaction and everything and then them just like building that and then to the hug it's like very emotionally yeah. overwhelming i love the idea that uh and Jay Smith Cameron and Kenneth Lonergan had been married at this point since 2000. So they had been married quite a long while. But this idea that could, and she had been just sort of a knock around actress, right? She had been in, mm. you know, small roles and things. I imagine she did a bunch of theater mm. and, and like, you know, small television stuff and guest starring roles. I want to see how many Law and Orders she's been on. She's been on Special Victims Unit, Criminal Intent, and, uh, Mothership Law and Order. So that is the triple crown of television acting. Um, also, one episode of Homicide Life on the Street, which feels like 
you know, that's the that's the extra special one. That's the EGOT, I guess, of, uh, of television acting is three <laughs> law and orders and a homicide life on the street. Um, <laughs> and apparently she was on Guiding Light. So, like, that's truly like it's the 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 New York yeah. acting like entire universe is wrapped up in all of that. Right. Guiding Light was one of the soaps that uh, filmed in Brooklyn back in the day when it was still Amazing. on. But so I love this idea that he as a writer director then is sort of giving her this like biggest platform she'd had. And then of course it sits mm. on the shelf for five years, but yeah. she's just so phenomenal in this movie. She's miraculous in it. It's mm-hmm. so good. I love her so much. Love her so much. All right. What else? I think I've gone, I literally was just looking at my notes. I'm like, I really did address kind of everything. So uh, if you guys have any closing notes before we move into uh, IMDb game. I don't know. I mean, I would like just there's it's such a small thing, but I want to mention that that in that scene with Mark Ruffalo on the porch outside that there is like one of the amazing phenomenons of like shooting outside in New York where suddenly wind starts happening and cloud shadow going over their faces. And it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. I just want to say like, damn, that scene is incredible. And that that when that moment happens, it's just like electrifying. It's a great good scene. Movie. It's a great, great scene. Yeah, good movie. Chris, what about you? I would I would just say, like, our relationship with this movie is probably not over, though maybe it is because, like, Lonergan is very clear that the extended cut is not his director's cut. It's not yeah. complete. Yeah. It's not, you know, uh, it, and the technical stuff we mentioned with it, like, is still kind of snagging. But, like, I... You can imagine the actual definitive, like, director's cut coming eventually, especially, like, I read an interview with him where he, like, speaks kind of fondly of what Ridley Scott has done uh, with his, like, constant re-editing of his movies. Blade so Runner, like, you could imagine, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. like, Lonergan want, is eager and willing to, you know, put out a definitive version of this movie, but, like knowing that this was a searchlight movie so now essentially disney owns the rights yeah. to it uh i do fear that like that could never happen slash you know this movie could fall away in some yeah. way mm. but like there's there's always hope that i think people yeah, expect like, criterion could do something for it and once it showed up on the channel i think it kind of reinvigorated that but yeah. Because yeah. Disney is basically kind of at the reins. Would they give them the rights to this movie to do it? I don't know. Yeah. I wish they would. Because, yeah, Nico Muley, the composer of the film, in an interview apparently alluded to a pot, like, that once there was a four-hour cut of this movie. Which oh, I mean, I believe it. I'd watch that. Yeah, I, do. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, I would add, just as I'm still staring at the uh, J. Smith Cameron uh, Wikipedia page, uh, the Law and Order, the original uh, Mothership Law and Order, she's has been on four times as different characters in four episodes, which icon once again, you know, character <laughs> actress icon. Uh, and she was also though she was on a nine episode stint on True Blood in the second season of True Blood from, or I think it was the second season, um, twenty ten to twenty eleven. So again, this entire time of a Margaret reunion that we didn't know was a Margaret reunion. Um, oh, yeah. because it all happened in the interim before uh, between the movie being filmed and being released. So it's just odd. It's Amazing. odd to have a movie with that much of a, you know, a negative space oh, so in its existence. Yeah. It's so, yeah. it's, it's wild. 
All right. Anyway. This is also one of those movies, too, where it's like some of our listeners may not know the full backstory of this. And, like, sometimes I see people, like, tweet things like, you know the Oscars are trash because they didn't give anything to Margaret. And it's like, <laughs> okay, you don't know anything of the context of this right. movie. Right. Oh, because we had mentioned it, too, it did show up, uh, as Patrick alluded to, on a bunch of Best of the Decade lists. It mm. was... Uh, Slant Magazine's number 12 of the decade, IndieWire put it at number 41, uh, K. Austin Collins at Vanity Fair put it as uh, number 18. It was, it definitely is a movie whose reputation has grown and grown and grown, and it really sort of uh, ensconced itself in the great movies of this, uh, the last decade and, and this, this century really. So I imagine in, you know, another 20 years, it will be thought of probably uh, mm. even more highly just because it's, it's sort of built that way, right? It's built yeah. to be, it's not mm. a timeless movie. It's very much a time capsule movie, but I think the time capsuleness of it ages really well. Yeah. If it that feels like sense. a movie that's kind of built to be discovered. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and again, the three-hour cut is available to rent on Amazon Prime. So, uh, you know, it's $4 well spent as far as I'm concerned. All Uh, right, let's move into the IMDb game. Chris, do you want to tell our listeners what the IMDb game is? Absolutely. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other to guess the top four titles that IMDb says an actor or actress is most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. We do love a free-for-all of hints. That's the IMDb game. Uh, All right, Patrick, you are our guest. I imagine you've been waiting to play the IMDb game since you were a small child and you didn't even realize (laughs) it. Small child watching Kundun in the theater and you were like, one day I will play the IMDb game. All right, so as our guest, you get the choice of going first or last and uh, who you would like to either give or guess from. Oh, God. Okay. I would like to go first because I'm very, very nervous. So, okay. Um, <laughs> I will go first to get it over with. Um, All right. So, who would, who do you want to, who do you want to, to guess first then? You want to, you want to. Why don't I? I'd love to guess first if I. Okay. F- from who? Um, uh, well, from, well, why don't I give to Chris? All right. So, you okay. give to Chris. Chris will give to me, and I'll start by giving to you all right okay so my choice i mentioned that i saw uh this is our youth a production of this is our youth on broadway Mm. uh several years ago starring margaret star kieran culkin and also tavi gevinson and also michael Mm. Sarah, who is who i am going to quiz you with Ah. for his known for no television or voiceover okay so, Sarah, okay, I'm going to try, okay, well, Juno. Juno is correct. That is one. Okay. Okay, well, that's good. Okay, well, there's that. Um, 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 um oh, okay. Um, what is that called? God damn it. Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Correct. <gasps> two for two. Okay, 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 okay. 
I'm trying to remember like when I first was aware of him. I think it probably was Juno, right? Which was 2007, but he definitely, um, oh no, he's in that movie that like Loki really annoyed me. Um, it's, um, super bad. Super bad. You are three for three. Are you kidding me? Okay. Wait, what's, um, okay, Michael Sarah, Michael Sarah. There is a hint I want to give you for this last one, but because you are three for three, I want you to, I want this to remain pure for you. Okay, okay. Um, all right. Uh, I'm trying to, like, even think about, like, what he's, um, what, okay, so, yeah. Wait. Wait, is it Gloria Bell? Oh, God, I wish it was. It is not. It is not Gloria <laughs> Bell. Uh, that is oh, one strike. No. I will say though, oh, well. now that you have yeah. now that uh, uh, one strike, this is a okay. film that has a connection to you personally, sort of work that you have done. <gasps> oh, oh, okay. I think I know what this is. Oh God, I have to get this title right. Yes, it's actually sort of the title is a journey. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, because yes, right, because. Dash and Lily, which is a television show that I was on. And then Nick and Nora, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Very good. Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist based on the novel by David Levithan. Hell yeah. Writer of Dash and Lily, a show, Patrick, even before we met, you know, I loved that show even when I didn't have to because my friend was on it. Um, I I really enjoyed it. Uh, Patrick, if our listeners don't know, played the, um, I would say, snarky uh, Strand bookstore clerk uh, in Dash and Lily. Yeah, I think so. Judgy Gay. Are we going to call you the Judgy Gay, right? Like you were casting aspersions. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, the thing that's um, funny is that like growing up in New York City, like the Strand, the Strand people really, really like. The second I was like, oh, I have an audition to play somebody like who works at Strand. I had an immediate image in my mind of people that were where you say like, oh, do you have like this book? And they would just sort of sigh heavily at you and say like, oh, yeah, it's over there. And <laughs> I you know. loved Dash and Lily so much. I'm so mad that it only got the first season and it didn't get renewed for a second I one. I will never not yell so at good. Netflix for that. Uh, I, I watched that one in my first pandemic Christmas and was... Uh, mm weeping at uh, not being able to participate in New York City Christmas. It's a great New York City show. Highly recommended. Me too. It was a delightful show. All right. Patrick, so you went, uh, you got all four with only one strike. Very good. Well done to you. Thank you. That was, I was really, really nervous. All right. So now Um, you will quiz Christopher File. Okay. So I went um, the succession route. Oh. And, um, I have for you, Chris Vile, um, uh, about Matthew McFadden. Oh, the finest performance on the past year of television. Just truly a brilliant, brilliant performance. And yes, there is one television. It has to be Succession. You are correct. Um, Pride and Prejudice. Correct. Okay, how do I think there is going to be further uh joe wright with anna karenina i'm going to say yes anna karenina incorrect 
Oh my god, no. He's um, so good though in Anna Karenina. He he's is wonderful. he's brilliant. A scream. He's so good. Hmm. Okay, now I have to also think of other things that he's been in. And there's no more TV, right? There's no more TV. Okay. Um What was he even in after Pride and Prejudice? I feel like he was in some type of vampire movie, probably. <laughs> oh boy. Um Yeah, there's a couple. It's a it's an interesting thing because he's like weirdly sort of can become very unrecognizable very easily, right? Because you throw a mustache on the guy, and he's suddenly yeah. a very different man. Totally. Um. Oh God, I don't. I know he was in the Howard's End miniseries, but that's TV. Mm. Maybe really sh- maybe struggling to figure out other movies that he's in. Um, oh boy, this might be my first failure in a long time, and I hate that I uh, might fail this on an actor that I love. Um, what are other like period? One of them things? got remade in an American context. I would say. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. And it's kind of an ensemble comedy. I've never seen it, but uh Yeah. I'm gonna directed by an American Oh wait, is he in the American version? Is that what it is? No. No. Sorry, anyway, go on. I'm just gonna throw out some (laughs) things that I know are wrong. Oh no, wait, no, 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 no. He's amazing in this, the assistant. Oh no, incorrect. He is amazing in the assistant though. That that's like genius. So no, that's incorrect. So Damn. Uh, two wrong guesses. Your years are 2007 and 2011. Okay. Um, so these are both post Pride and Prejudice. Uh, one of them is a British movie that was remade in America ensemble. Did you say comedy? Yeah. Okay. It does. The original does have an American director, though. But yes. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if that helps you any, but uh and then Comedy. the other one that you're missing is a kind of notorious adaptation of an oft adapted source material. Yeah. Notorious because it's bad or yeah. like Yeah. I got I, I'm pretty sure it got poor reviews. I think it was yeah, not met with welcome. It was kind of a it was a take. It was a real uh uh, stylistic take on this material. Ah. Uh, yeah. Was it like a Robin Hood? <laughs> it cl- close, you're in, like, you're in a similar vein. Yeah, you're not you're not far away from it. It's also a uh, a so director like actress marriage, right? Patrick, I'm not wrong it's about that, right? A director actress marriage, what? right? The director and the star oh, of it are one of the yes, stars of it. I believe. I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that actress is um, would kind of you would expect her to appear in something like this because she sort of only appears in things like this. In like medieval costume things, it sounds like if it's adjacent to Robin Hood. Things that things that maybe involve, um, you know, running and jumping. Yeah, the way oh, so the it's way like an action movie, like an action movie. Yeah. <laughs> 
but it's like well, a Robin ba- Hood. It's, and based off of a very, very um, well-known book. Yes. Okay. Been adapted a few times uh, in our lifetime, one of which famously had a, uh, a soundtrack song with three very famous singers. Three famous, like, female singers? No, three famous male singers who are all sort That's of famous. Weird. It's like the three tenors. <laughs> yeah, um, not quite tenors, but like probably around that same time that like the three tenors were like a thing culturally. We've talked about this song before. We've sort of uh, had some three fun men singing together. Yeah. It's the only movie with three men singing together that we kind of uh, uh, gag over. Not because it's great, but it's because it's sort of uh, ridiculous. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, um wow wow i have not bombed this hard in very no, long I'm um sorry. okay so uh, it's like medieval action from a book yeah that has been there's a had several versions including one that had a song yes the director actress marriage is one of those that like they're not like highly it's not one of those ones that it's like uh, we think about this this partnership as having created great art, but it's uh, <laughs> it's sort it's not of like, like Madonna low. and Guy Ritchie. Is it? They were already divorced by then. It's not them, but it's sort of like it's sort of low culture that has been like popular within its milieu. But uh, yeah, action though. Yes, decidedly mm-hmm. action, yeah. like kind of. Uh, is it Kate Cut. Beckinsale and who she? No, but like to? it's the other, it's the other it, pale, it's pair. Close. It's close. It's yeah, not it's Kate like Beckinsale that. and the under underworld director. It's the other ones. It's the other two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they make movies like the underworld movies. Yes, hundred percent. Yes, including like a series that has had a lot of installments. Yeah, it's Mila Jovovich and the Resident Evil guy, Paul yes, W. It is. Anderson. Yes, I yes, no, yes. still have no idea what this is. Um, okay. Obviously, this movie like didn't hit my register or didn't make money. Or um... So she's like the lady in this, but the movie is about a, sure. a number, a certain number of, of men. A specific okay. number and of it men. Was a specific number of for... men. It, did they do a Three Musketeers movie? Yes. yes. Fuck they off. <laughs> 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 Fuck off. <laughs> So now you understand why I was bringing up the earlier movie that had a song with three men. Oh my god, that's not just a, who else is that besides Brian Adams, Rod Stewart, and Sting? Oh, all for one, all for love. Hello, oh, man. <laughs> hello. Absolutely not. Um, okay, so I still have another movie yeah. that is also, a, but this is the original, and there was. There was an American remake, and this is from 2007, and it's a comedy, an ensemble comedy. There is one American in the cast, though. There is. That's what sort of made me sort of uh, raise an eyebrow, yes. Um, Yeah. Can I get the American that's in the cast? Peter Dinklage. I mean, yeah. Oh, it's Death at a Funeral. Yes. Never seen it. It is Death at a Funeral. (laughs) Nor have I. Yeah. I did see it, I think. Wow. What'd you think? Wow. It was fun. Yeah, chaotic Thank you for known the challenge. for. I have never uh, done that poorly in a long time. <laughs> oh my God. 
Well, I, if you will ever have me back, you can feel free to obviously you're welcome back whenever. Um, <laughs> so Joseph, for you, yes. Yes. Uh, we are talking about Margaret, a movie in which Kenneth Lonergan plays a uh, father. So what did I pick for you but a father in one of his other movies, Mr. Kyle Chandler? Oh, he's very good in uh, in Manchester by the Sea. I just was watching uh, screeners of the new television show that he's on that uh, I don't know if I'm at liberty to talk about on air, but uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Um, Neat. Any television for Kyle Chandler? There's no television. That's insane. <laughs> no Friday Night Lights. <laughs> Jesus H. Oh, no, sorry. I was talking about Bloodline. No, of course I was talking about Bloodline. Um, <laughs> all right. Kyle Chandler, four films. <laughs> no television. Uh, is Manchester by the Sea one of them? It is. All right. Is King Kong one of them? How did you get King Kong? It's one of the few <laughs> Kyle Chandler movies that I think about. <laughs> oh, I don't think anybody thinks about him in that movie at all. I was like, he's going to get hung up on King Kong. Um, <laughs> can we talk about, I don't think we unpacked this uh, at the time of release. Uh, Kyle Chandler in Manchester by the Sea plays Joe Chandler. No, I didn't know that. I didn't, I what? never uh, clocked that. That's crazy. Oh, wild. All right. Wow. I may be misremembering that he's in this movie, but I kind of don't think I am. Is in, is he in Zero Dark Thirty? He is in Zero Dark Thirty. Not on. Is his that known one for. of them? Not on his known for. Okay, one no. strike. One strike. All right, Kyle Chandler. Um, the problem is I'm gonna start mis. I'm gonna misconstrue Kyle Chandler dramatic film roles with John Hamm dramatic film mm. roles. I feel like mm-hmm. part of me wants to guess the town, but it's John Hamm who's in the town. Um, Kyle Chandler is conceivably in the town. I was going to say, there's, there's, it's not, yeah. not ruling out that Kyle Chandler is also in the town. He um, would be there, like, the same way somebody is in Margaret, just sort of one. Right, right, right. Like Kristen um, Ritter is seen in a shop yes! window. Yes! Saying she can't have the cowboy hat. <laughs> that, oh my, all right. I was trying to figure out where, because I saw Kristen Ritter's name in the cast list, and I was like, I did not see her. Like, I absolutely uh, missed her in that. But, uh, all right. Um, like there was the another actor in, in Margaret that I wanted to jot down, and um, I forgot It's filled to, with so many recognizable people. Yeah. Where, it's more shocking it, it, who is not in Margaret, especially. Right. Like, Right. New York theater character actors. Like, why is yeah. Frank Wood not in this movie? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm. Okay. Kyle the Chan Chandler. Um, wrong guess. Two correct guesses. Two correct answers. All right. So there's got to be another, like, action-y thing that he's in. Is it like... This is wrong, but I'm going to guess the kingdom. Uh, it is not the kingdom. All right. Your years are 2011 and 2012. He was in Margaret and I didn't know it. Um, <laughs> 2011 and 2012. All right. Oh, wait. 2011 is Super 8, I'm pretty sure. It is Super 8. Mm. Another movie where he so plays So 2012, 
a non-Zero Dark Thirty movie that he was in in 2012. Okay. I don't remember him in this movie, but it is another <laughs> movie that is fully conceivable that he is in it. Was it an Oscar nominee in any way? It was an Oscar winner. Argo. It's Argo. That makes sense that he's in Argo. I don't remember him specifically in it, but like that's part of the, that might have been me thinking he was in the town is I was thinking of him in Argo. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. There we go. <sighs> what a ride, you guys. Two and a half hours of pure delight. <laughs> Patrick Vale, literally, when I say come back anytime, I truly mean it. Like, come back anytime. Start thinking about what the, the next movie you want to do with us is. We uh, very much will will welcome you with open arms. This was really fantastic. We hope you had a good time. Oh, thank you so much. This was like the best time ever. This was so much fun. All right. Uh, listeners, that is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore Buzz. Patrick, let the listeners know what you would like them to seek out uh, if they would like to see more or hear more from you. Uh, well, I am at Instagram at Patrick Vale. That's V-A-I-L-L. And on Twitter at Patrick underscore veil v-a-i-l-l and to see me in something um stay tuned there will be an announcement very soon perhaps some news uh along the way all right chris where yes uh, chris where can the listeners find you and your stuff uh you can find me in my strident uh point of view <laughs> On uh, Letterboxd and Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. All right. And I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed spelled the same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So when you are exiting the fairway, please make sure you look both ways and then get home safely and write us a nice review. That is all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz Everybody.